Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. You bet. Everybody, welcome to this, the second Ask Starbaby Anything episode. Starbaby, good to see you. Thanks for coming back to join us. How are you doing? Fine. Happy to be here. Excellent. Uh, we, we had some uh, really good feedback of the last uh, AMA. And in fact, it f- felt like this, this was the third AMA we did. I don't know if there was another live stream we did. Well, one of the problems we had in the last episode was uh, some audio issues. So I would just say up front to everybody at home who's listening, if there are any audio issues, then uh, ping a message into the chat, let us know. Uh, you should be able to hear everybody okay. We've, we've done a double check on that beforehand. Um, and if you um, have any other uh, issues around sort of what we're doing, then, then, then leave a message. We've got two people. We've got Nux and we've got Exchequer who are in the chat uh, presently who are helping to farm questions from the chat and send them to us. Uh, but they're also there to help with any issues you might have. Um, so uh, part of the feedback we got on the last episode actually came from some mates of uh, Star Babies, which was that uh, my five-minute intro was just excessive. Um, and I think it's just they want to listen to him talk more. Or maybe he fabricated that feedback. I don't know. Maybe maybe he, did. he wants to talk more. At any rate, I'm going to make this expedited. So so what we're going to do is I do want to say thanks quickly again to Jax. Jax, the chief meme officer at 10% True. It is him who's put together this fantastic background. Uh, thank you very much for doing that. Um, thanks also to Nux and to Exchequer, who I've just mentioned. And I think Scotty might also be joining at some point to help with farming those questions. The purpose of today's conversation actually is quite Ukraine-centric. Um, we've got, um, we're going to start with a story, which is the uh, usual beginning. So that's going to be uh, start maybe telling us something that will hopefully entertain and, and um, uh, inform. But we're then going to go through the Ukraine update, and then we're going to talk about this uh, Royal United Services Institute paper that has been released this week. Uh, it talks about Russian air power um, over over Ukraine since the February invasion. Uh, and then we'll ask the AMA questions for, for the Ukraine. So on our Discord channel, people have already posted some questions. If you're listening to this and you want to post some questions for Starbaby, we will try to get to them. I can't promise we will. Um, but if you've got Ukraine-related questions, get them in now, because then we'll have an interlude um, where I'm going to show a video from a mate of the channel. And then we're going to get to talking about some other things, some more generally military aviation-related things, such as the fact that we've got British pilots and maybe American and Australian pilots, too, helping the Chinese learn how to fly fighters. Uh, and then we'll have some more AMA questions on general uh, mill aviation topics at the end. So there you go. I think I did that quite quickly. Uh, I don't think there should be any complaints that I've talked too much at the beginning. Why don't you tell us a story? All right. So no shit. There I was. I was asked for an FNG story, and if you don't know what FNG stands for, you're going to have to look it up, but it means new young person. How about that? So 
this is the rare nav school sortie. So in nav training at Mather, the aircraft, our primary trainer was actually a T-43A, the Gator. And the T-43A is a 737-200. So that's the 737 airliner you're all familiar with, with the the kind of long cylindrical engines. It looked like you took a mini submarine, chopped off the front and the back end, and stuck it on the wing. And so that's what the 200 looks like. And in the back of this are 12 student stations, which are all identical and they're all repeaters. And you can face forward or backwards. And they're all tied to the navigational radar in the nose. And we've got a couple sextant ports for those poor bastards that had to learn celestial navigation. Um, did you know that a sextant port on a T-43 is exactly the right size to blow a hard-boiled egg out of at altitude? I'll bet you didn't know that. Um, but it is. And so, and hard-boiled eggs come in the box lunches. That's why we know that. We speaking metaphorically, of course. Anyway, so this is our trainer. And what we do, uh, it was Mather Air Force Base was in Sacramento. We had a number of routes that go out to the northeast or to the north or to the south. And they're just navigational training routes. And what you actually had to do is you divide the sortie up in a chunk so that a, uh, during one of these chunks, one student is telling the pilots what to do on the flight deck and the other students are monitoring their position because they're not they're not cooperating in any way uh, in order to get this done. And so there I was and we're flying Corners 4, I believe. And Corners 4 is a route that goes straight out to Nebraska, turns around and comes back. And there is nothing, once you get east of Crater Lake, there is nothing out there to make this easy on you. There's no nice radar navigational points. There's no lakes. Uh, there's no rivers. There's no big cities. I mean, it's a whole lot of nothing. And, like, steer do not show up on uh, navigational radars, although the fence lines designed to keep them in sometimes do. So we're out there, and my instructor is not feeling good he should not have been flying that day and the flight might have been a little bumpy and i'm out there and it's not my turn and so i'm just kind of watching what's going on we've got two degrees of right drift i've got this nailed i know exactly where we are and so i can lean back and not pay attention to what's going off and in the meantime we we penetrate a frontal boundary which means it gets bumpy and that puts my instructor over the edge. He's feeling ill. He's got some gastrointestinal distress. And now we're hitting a bunch of bumps. And he pretty much says to me, hey, you're on your own for this. And I say, okay. I mean, whatever. And in the meantime, those bumps, why do we have those bumps? Because we're passing through a frontal boundary. And so my drift goes from two degrees in one direction to the right to 13 degrees in the other direction while I'm not paying attention. And so it gets to the point where we're up to my time and I realize that I have completely misplotted the route and I could be tens of miles off. But we got one fix we could use during, we kept a log of everything. We could, we could do one fix off a navigational aid and I hadn't used my fix yet. So bang, I nail my fix, I get my new position. Um, I figure it out, we turn around and we start heading for home. My turn up at the front, on course, on time, we're rocking. And I managed to pull out a save. Well, because my instructor's out of there, he, he's not overseeing me. I then erased my whole log with all the entries um, where I wasn't paying attention and put new entries in so that I, I it looked like I had been paying attention all along. 
And we land, and he says, yeah, uh, I'm not even going to debrief. You're responsible for your own grade sheet. <laughs> like, great. Okay, now, so that's a blank check. And if you're going to give me a blank check, I'm going to use a blank check. So the grading goes from zero to four. Zero means you busted the rod. If you get a zero in any category, I gave myself a bunch of fours. And in the comments, I wrote best navigator since Ferdinand Magellan. Because why would I pass that up? And of course, he gets the grade sheet later and he sees this and grade sheets are all filled out in pencil. And so he erases it and writes something new, except that this is on carbon paper. So it's two grade sheets with carbon paper between it. Okay, And in the rewriting, the carbon paper, the original, which is the one that says, I'm the greatest navigator since Ferdinand Magellan, that stays. And that's the one that goes into my records <laughs> with the instructor's signature at the bottom because I didn't sign it. I just filled it out. So there we go. Star Baby as a new guy doing really what I think you would expect. <laughs> It only got worse from there. You've got to, you've got to tell your story. Um, not not now, but the uh, Star Baby is a challenge to command. I think that was the phrase that you said, uh, a general officer who who was, I think, friendly with you. Um, oh, absolutely. So. That's 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 General Holmes. Uh, uh, general Mobile Holmes, uh, F-15 C model driver, saw the light and went to Dark Grays. Um, endangered his career multiple times by agreeing to hold my leash. Uh, he held my leash in Afghanistan for a couple of times. He was my boss at Air Combat Command. And that's how he described me uh, was, I am a challenge to command. You know, and he was also explaining to another officer that I'd been in the Skunk Works with. And he said, yeah, you can't make Star Baby do anything he doesn't want to do. Okay? But fortunately, the things he wants to do are good for the Air Force. But that's true. And that's why it's such a miracle that I actually ever made 06. Um, it's because it's very difficult to get me to do something I don't want to do. Well, luckily for us, you want to talk about Ukraine. So we, it's, it's a win-win win situation. Tell us, what have, you, what have you seen in the last month then? All right, so the big news, let's work backwards. The big news is the Ukrainian army has recaptured the city of Kherson in the south. Um, they may not have all of it, and they may not have fully cleared it, but they're there, the flags are up. The, uh, uh, the flag went up over the municipal building this morning before Ukrainian soldiers got in. And from the from watching this at a distance, the, the biggest delay for the Ukrainians entering the city appeared to be all the people coming out to hug them. Uh, it's still going to be a clearing operation because the, the Russians no doubt left behind booby traps and mines. But that's the big news. The other big news, I think, and we're going to uh, talk about it later, is the uh, RUSI guys, Royal United Services Institute, uh, which I think is the oldest continuously operating military think tank in the world. They were started by the Duke of Wellington in 18-something or other. Um, they put together a pretty good list of what the Ukrainian air war looks like and in terms of fighters, bombers, helicopters, missiles, and what Ukraine needs. So that feeds into this week's picture is that we now have from the Ukrainian side, from interviews of the Ukrainians, I think a better picture of Russian Air Force operations. And what we appear to have learned, what Rusi teased out uh, from the interviews is that the Russians are flying more sorties, more fighter sorties than we thought they were. They're flying combat air patrols, two, six cap, or two ship caps, 
during daylight hours with MiG-31 Foxhounds, uh, later model upgraded Foxhounds at that, so the, the MiG-31 BM, and Su-35s. And there are apparently six to eight lanes or zones where those aircraft are flying over Russian or occupied Ukrainian territory and they're looking for Ukrainian aircraft. And they are taking long range and it looks like very long range shots and appear to have bagged about a dozen Ukrainian aircraft. Uh, MiG-29s, four of those, five Su-25s, uh, one each uh, fencer and flanker. That may not add up to 12, but I'm close. And so the the Russian Air Force is still in the fight. They're just not necessarily going in the fight uh, up close for ground support. The other thing we found out, which was very interesting, is that the Russians were trying destruction of enemy air defenses. Now, we discussed a couple episodes ago when we we're talking about Russian air power ops in Ukraine, we talked about the fact that the Russians are shooting anti-radiation missiles, and they are, and they're shooting anti-radiation missiles uh, from the MiG-21s, possibly from the Su-35s. It might be tough to tell, but they are definitely having some limited effect on Ukrainian forces. But they have been trying destruction attacks where the fast jets would fire the anti-radiation missiles to try and suppress the radar, and the Su-25s would come in low level with a load of unguided rockets, jack their nose, and fire off the rockets like we've seen videos. So um, these are, are unguided rockets, and their chances of hitting something the size of a radar are pretty close to zero. And in fact, there have been no damage of any kind against an air defense system attributed to those attacks. Uh, that's just your random, that's your unguided artillery barrage from an airplane kind of move. So it's interesting to see that Despite the fact that, that I slammed the Russians early for not having a real campaign plan, which I think is still true, it doesn't mean they haven't been trying to uh, execute what you would expect them to execute in terms of suppression of enemy air defenses. The fact that they haven't been particularly great at it doesn't mean that they that they the Ukrainians have had it all their way. Both sides have successfully killed other side's radars. I think the Ukrainians are more successful at it, but it's hard to tell. Um, and it's going to be harder to tell until the Ukrainian army overruns a bunch of wreckage and we get pictures. Uh, it may be that, that people with satellite imagery and good satellite imagery have pictures already, but I'm not one of those people. In terms of helicopters, we still see helicopter activity on the front on both sides. And but the Russian Ka-52s have been getting hammered, uh, and one of the things I had not thought about—we'd seen it. We'd seen a couple of videos of Ka-52s getting shot down by anti-tank guided missiles, and that's great. I love it. Uh, those are the Stuknas, the Ukrainian-built uh, anti-tank guided missiles, and they've got two kills on the Ka-52. I hadn't realized why the Russians are hovering. And that's probably because of their beam rider missiles. Mm. If they're moving, uh, they will lose track on a beam rider. And I'll explain that later when we when we talk about attack helicopters. So big picture, the air war is still going on. The Russians are still using cruise missiles. They're still using the occasional ballistic missile. They have shot probably 400 of the Shahid 
drones that they got from Iran, and they've done a lot of damage to electrical power infrastructure. And so what we're seeing in the battlefield that is genuinely new is the advent of the low-cost cruise missile. Now, it's painful for me to admit this, but Air Force Research Lab had a project called the Low-Cost Cruise Missile about a decade ago, and it failed because they couldn't get it to low cost and they couldn't figure out what militarily useful thing they could do with a low-cost cruise missile with a 40-pound warhead. Um, and, of course, the Russians have that challenge, too. But since they're not targeting military targets, they don't have to worry about what military use you get of a 40-pound warhead. It's what damage you can do to a civilian target. Uh, totally different equation. And they did not go with a jet. And they did not. They, they just accepted uh, a drone from the Iranians with a 40-kilo warhead and let it do its thing. So we're seeing the first of the low-cost cruise missiles. We're also seeing... The, the Russians increase their use of loitering munitions where they are actually flying these things under remote control into their targets and they're using hunter killer teams. So they will have a, a drone up that is just providing imagery and they will get a target and they will fire a loitering munition at it and, and pretty much guide that into the target um, through the data link where the operator is actually looking through the seeker on the nose of the weapon. However, I, I've, I've seen them get a number of hits and they claim they kill a target. They've been hitting things. They have not necessarily been killing them. So if they hit the side of a T-72 turret, it looks good and it makes a cloud of smoke. And it probably does jack. Um, we saw that effect with loitering munitions in Armenia uh, two years ago. I also saw them hit an SA-11 Telar with it. Um, Teller had two missiles on. Clearly, the operators knew something was going on because the missiles kept coming up, going down. The radar is the, the vehicle is rotating. They've got the radar searched, but they don't see this guy come in from the side. It hits the side of the turret. And what happens? Nothing. Nothing apparent. It does not cook off the missiles. It does not get a catastrophic kill on the vehicle. Um, I don't think it did the radar any good because there's a bunch of black boxes, you know, about in the part of the turret which they hit. But uh, an entirely repairable uh, hit, I think. It's just, it's a, certainly a mission kill and a firepower kill, and uh, it's one that may take weeks to repair, but it's not causing a catastrophic cook-off. So more small munitions, more of the autonomous munitions, and a lot of low-cost cruise missiles because the expensive cruise missiles are almost certainly running very low. What else can I say? Tell me about the, um, for a moment, we, we, we obviously concentrate quite a lot on the channel around um, you know, technology and not so much tactics, but the application of, of air power to warfare. But can you talk a little bit about military ethics? One of the comments that I saw in one of our previous videos, which I think is perfectly valid, and I think you acknowledged it, was that in the Balklands in the 90s, going after electrical infrastructure was one of the things that NATO did. Um, obviously, the Russians are going after um, infrastructure, electrical infrastru infrastructure wholesale now in Ukraine, and it's having a, a significant impact on the civilian population. But is that a valid target? Uh, does, does it have a military application? So it can be a valid target. Let me throw a distinction between NATO's targeting. When, when NATO attacked energy, part of the electrical energy system, uh, the attacks were generally aimed against 
the the distribution and not the generation. So power generation is hard to build. Um, it's hard to repair. It's hard to rebuild. Distribution is you know also easier to destroy. But if you bring power lines down or if you uh, cause damage to a transformer station, NATO tried to minimize the amount of damage it would done that was done so that the the time period for repairs would be measured in days or weeks or even sometimes hours. So that's different from going after generation capability. Power generation can be a militarily valid target if the power is being used um, to power something of military value. So, for example, if you have an air defense system, you know, a, a, a control and reporting post, a bunch of radars, and yes, they have all generators, but they would prefer to not run the generators all the time. They might want to pull off the grid. And if you separate them from the grid, you're attacking the, the power infrastructure, and that's completely legitimate. Okay, You're separating the, 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 the military units, the actual green-painted objects from the military grid, force them on the generator power, uh, force them to burn fuel. Totally legitimate. Um, if you are hitting the heating system for a town which has no military utility, isn't supporting the Ukrainian military, or if you hit a city where you're, ju it's just, you're going after power generation, that's a lot more questionable. And that becomes, um, that can, it's not an easy cut and dried targeting decision, but with all your targeting decisions, you still have to tie it to some kind of military gain that you are trying for and it's very difficult if you have a, a power system that is not supplying military elements, then that's very, very hard to justify that is targeting. Heating, I mean, hitting the town's steam plants so that nobody has heat, that's, uh, that's not valid. And going after water supplies, that's not valid. Um, and that's actually a war crime. That's, that's pretty much unambiguous. So there are times when, you know, you hit a rail line. You, if you needed to isolate a rail line because it's an electric rail line, again, that's kind of second order military effects. If the rail line's moving men and material, then it, if you hit power to cut off power to a rail line so they can't move it, totally legit. So it can be a step or two removed. That's kind of the, the big difference, though. If you're using it as a terror tactic to deprive people of heat and light, that's, that's a war crime. Well, it's one to add to a list of many that's growing by all accounts. So, let's talk about this. Uh, let's talk about this Rusi paper then. So, you, you already gave a, a brief summary, and uh, I would I would recommend if I just quickly uh, I don't need to do this. I'm just doing it because I can. Uh, I would recommend that ev everybody here goes and reads this. It's a it's a fantastic report. It's by uh, Justin Bronk, who people will probably be very familiar with him. He's been fairly. Um, um, omnipresent, I think you would say, throughout this conflict and is a, is a great speaker, erudite, um, and seems to really have a good handle on uh, the topic. And as Starbaby mentioned, he has actually been to Ukraine with um, Nick Reynolds and, and Jack uh, Watling, or maybe one of them did, I don't know exactly who went, but they went to Ukraine and they've interviewed people. This is not just a sort of open source um, experiment. They've actually gone and talked to these people. So it's a really good read. Um, and I think in, in many respects, it Backs up what Star Baby has said 
in previous episodes around low-level tactics and the reasons for those and, uh, and, and what has transpired. But it does tell a good story around the initial two days. It talks about how the uh, Russians did have a plan. They used electronic attack. They used decoys. They managed to score kinetic kills on ground-based air defense systems. Um, a lot of static stuff, old SA-3 stuff, I think they talk about. Um, static, um, early warning, sort of search radar sites, that kind of stuff. And the Ukrainians were in some instances a little slow to move their SA-11s, SA-8s um, and, and get them sort of um, out of the um, line of fire, let's say. But it talks also about how after that sort of two-day period or so, there's some electrical fratricide going, fratricide going on where the Russian army is trying to advance the electronic attack that they've used successfully in the first two days, is now jamming their own forces, and how the VKS, the Russian Air Force, is being retasked to support those guys on the ground rather than to go out after the Ukrainian Air Force and, and ground-based air defense systems. And and so I got a couple of questions, Stabi, I wanted to, wanted to ask you about um, you know what's contained in, in the story thereafter. Um, air launch decoys. So they talk about a, an air launch decoy, which um, I highlighted a bunch of sections, and I don't remember which one it's called, and I can't remember what the air launch decoy is, is called, but I, I Googled it, couldn't find anything about it. But I you, couldn't find anything either. So I was going to ask what, what you know about it, but do you have any anything, uh, sort of any, so anything in the back of your mind from your... The, the Russians prior to 2008 had a lot of crappy drones and reconnaissance drones that had been converted from target drones. And they didn't work worth a darn over Georgia. And that is what started the Russians on their modern drone path was seeing uh, Georgian Hermes drones, Israeli built, sold to the Georgians, looking down at the Russians. The Russians had no equivalent and they had nothing that could do anything about these drones. So uh, the Russians ended up with a whole bunch of crappy jet-powered drones, and I suspect that those were used as decoys. The, there were a couple examples of what appeared to be drone wreckage recovered in the first days, but it did not appear to be a massive barrage. Um, it did not appear to be the equivalent of a scathe mean uh, effort that opened Desert Storm, which was an American use of high-speed target drones to simulate aircraft. So I'm not sure how much they actually used in terms of decoys and how, if at all, they fooled the Ukrainians. Uh, the Ukrainians did, I mean, we saw very early on, I saw burning uh, talking and thin skin radars and talking is fixed. I mean, it's it, once you set that up, it's going to be there for the rest of your life and the rest of your children's lives. It's not even remotely transportable. Uh, they have to have guy wires to hold the antenna up. It's so big. Really long range, though. But uh, we even saw the truck and trailer mounted stuff. But one of the things that the Ukrainians told Rusi was that it was the SA-10P batteries. It was the parts of those batteries that couldn't move because they were in a repair status. So they didn't have spare parts. That's what got caught early on. And so it's very much like what we saw against the Serbs in 1999 is you give the air defenders an opportunity to flush out of the garrison and go to work and they're going to flush out of the garrison and go to work. That's exactly what Ukraine did. One of Ukraine's responses to this then, and I found this curious, was for air defense and ground-based air defense to, to de-conflict by time. And I was thinking back to Desert Storm 
and all of the conflicts that I know of, at least, and you'll you'll tell me if I'm wrong, but but sort of time has not been a way of deconflicting. You know, there have been safe return routes. Let's say you need to fly at a certain altitude at a certain airspeed, squawking on in this channel, and then you won't get bagged by your own side. Um, and I guess sort of time relates to the switchover of mode four codes and that kind of thing. You need to be squawking this after midnight and before the midnight you need to be on this, whatever. But but obviously, and the um, Ukrainians seem to have been a little coy about this, but they had some blue on blue as a result of that. So is, is deconflicting by time a valid way to do that? Should they have known better? No, deconfliction by time is fine. And when you talk about a transit route or a low-level transit route or a safe passage zone, um, those are often open and closed based on times. So time is routine. Uh, if you activate a, uh, say, a FEZ, a fighter engagement zone, that is activated in an area for a specific period of time. So this is all normal NATO airspace coordination order stuff, is you activate an area of the airspace for a specific time, it's not necessarily permanent. So you set up your, your air refueling tracks. They might last for a long period of time, and they're always active because you've always got a tanker in them. But I can bring up and bring down my fighter engagement zone or my missile engagement zone or my low-level transit route or my safe corridor or any uh, uh, restricted operating zone. Those can all be brought up and brought down and done by time. So it's completely legitimate. And to some extent, the Russians are doing it, too, because they're flying your combat air patrols during the day, apparently. But at night, when they don't appear to be flying caps, don't think that that airspace isn't covered by a missile system. Mm. So I suspect that both sides are using time. Yeah, just make sure your watches are synchronized. T tell us about then um, this sort of technical overmatch. You already sort of referenced it in terms of shot ranges in excess of 100 kilometers from uh, the MiG 31s, but Su 30 and Su 35s also have uh, this technical overmatch as well. They are apparently shooting from not dissimilar distances. Uh, and it sounds to me it's a bit like the Ukrainians have the R 27, the um, Russians have the R 77, which is the, the fully active radar guided missile. Uh, it's a bit like an AIM-7 versus an AMRAAM fight. Um, I, I know you won't spill any secrets, but what? how do you deal with that technical overmatch? I mean, you know, the, the article kind of references going in low and using some sneaky tactics to maybe negate some of that um, you know, difference in weapons engagement zone or missile engagement zone. But, but broadly speaking, what do you do about that? So that's hard. Um, broadly speaking, is you stay out of the weapons engagement zone is your best bet. All right, so the the missiles, let's talk about dueling missiles. The the Ukrainians have the R-27, which is NATO codenamed Alamo. And that is an 80s kind of missile, not bad, comes in infrared, and uh, radar versions comes in short-range and long-range versions as well. And those missiles are kind of like a vietnam era aim 7e they're boost only so they're pretty quick out of the gate but they don't have a sustainer motor so they they don't maintain their kinematics for a long period of time the missile i think we're worried about on the other side is the r37 r37 m's which is the aa 13 what do they call that um 
the asshole. Okay, so the AA-13 asshole is the missile that the MiG-31s uh, and some of the Su-35 Sierras are carrying and shooting from long range. It's actually NATO code name is Axehead. Uh, my NATO code name is better. It just shows you how things would be different if I were in charge of NATO code names. So they have a missile that that its claimed range without the supplementary booster is 200 kilometers. And in terms of the radar, they have a late model NATO codename Flashdance. I can't remember the Russian name for the radar. It's this giant radar. And this was the first phased array radar stuck in a fighter um, in the Flashdance. When it went into the early models of the Foxhound, this has been upgraded Big antenna, a lot of power, and big antenna, a lot of power makes a lot of difference. Um, the predecessor aircraft was the MiG-25 and its radar Foxfire, and some modes of the Foxfire were so powerful they were considered impossible to jam. Uh, not just difficult, impossible to jam. And so now you have a modernized version of a MiG-31 up there with a big antenna, a sophisticated radar, and a long-range missile, and it's a tough combination. How did the Ukrainians respond? They responded by going low. And it doesn't matter what the range of the missile is if the guy's radar can't see you because you put a hill between him and his radar. Okay, so remember that if, you're, if you're, your shooting airplane is a long way away, that graze angle plus curvature of the earth means that you don't need a really tall mountain to hide behind when you're the potential target down here you can hide fairly well behind relatively low hills if you're low enough to do it. It's all about the graze angle, and you can do the math. That adds in a disparity because now Russian missiles are coming down from on high, and the inferior range Ukrainian missiles are going up. So the Ukrainians really have no return shot option. And so there's no possibility of a missile duel, and that is a bad position to be in. So... The, the way to handle that is to assess what you really need to do in terms of going into that missile engagement range from the combat air patrols and decide again if you really need to do that thing hmm. uh, because you're in a, a disadvantage. The second part of your question, I think, you know, AMRAM versus AIM-7. So the AMRAM has a specified size and weight. Why is that? And the, the answer is the AMRAM is sized so you can fit it on the wingtip launch rail of an F-16, which did not originally have a radar missile. And then when it got the Sparrows for the air defense version, they went under the wings. But the wingtip, that's, you know, 325, 350-ish pounds. That's what the wingtip can handle. And remember, it's not the wingtip handling the missile sitting on the ground. That's easy. It's the wingtip handling the missile when you're pulling a bunch of Gs. So that missile gets very heavy uh, in an F-16 when an F-16 starts pulling Gs. But that defined the weight of the missile. And so that missile then defined the form factor of the F-35 and the F-22's internal weapons base because they're stealthy and they want to carry their stuff internally. Which means that for 20-some-odd years, we've been stuck on an AMRAM airframe, which is a limited weight and a limited size. And honestly, the designers have done very well. The latest model C7s uh, are much farther range capable than in the early model Alphas. But you're still stuck in this form factor, whereas both the Russians and the Chinese, they're carrying their missiles externally. They can make them huge. They can pretend they're... they're um, 
you know, Hughes Corporation and they're building the Phoenix missile for the Tomcat and they can have this giant kind of space launch vehicle hanging around on their swing wing. Um, that gets you something. You don't need to have a lot of finesse when you have a big ass booster um, and you're launching from on high. So that's a disparity that not only the Ukrainians have to deal with, but the Americans are going to have to deal with because mm-hmm. the the design of the missile was was set for a certain point and then it's kind of constrained forever after because of the weapons bay dimensions of your other fighters which is another reason why the f-15 ex has so much potential is the potential to go back to a much larger air-to-air missile and i would love to see what can be done with a sparrow airframe which uh hornets could carry i imagine super hornets still have some provision there somewhere but maybe not um what can you do with a new rocket motor new flight control laws uh on that the the japanese build a version of the aim 7 called an aa4 bravo Mm. and that differs from an aim 7 that it has an active radar seeker in the nose so we know that things can be done um but the u.s air force in particular has not been willing to follow that path because they locked themselves into a mindset that they haven't been able to get out of and this is an important lesson to learn from the disparity between Ukraine and Russia. The positive side is Ukraine is not Israel. It's not always backed up against the ocean. And so they can use a little depth uh, to try and stay away from long-range Russian missile shots because those aircraft are not um, coming into the Ukrainian weapons engagement zones for the Ukrainian service to air. Another disparity comes from a system I was not familiar with. Um, a Podlet K1 is what it's described as, and it's this um, very long range, maybe sort of uh, quite coarse resolution um, search radar, early warning radar. I don't know exactly what, how you define it, but apparently it has a 600 kilometer detection range and it can detect targets up to 15 feet in altitude. I'm, I'm mixing uh, metrics there, but um, that's that's what I've read. And and what uh, Justin and his colleagues are saying is that this system has the ability to feed S-300, um, S-400 missiles with target data as they come out of the apex of their launch. So they, they're launched in a sort of lock-on after-launch mode, and this thing can point them in the right general direction of, of the target. Um, so, so I had two questions around it. What do you make of that? Uh, were you familiar with it? And two... Bronk and his colleagues talk about there was one in Belarus and one in Crimea. Why weren't they taken out sooner? The one in Crimea was, in fact, hit very early. Um, I don't know what it was hit with, but I've got photos of its blackened chassis. Uh, So what this is, this radar, and I don't know the NATO code name or even if one's been assigned. It's a truck-mounted radar on a mast that is kind of like a billboard and it's you know, a billboard on a stick with a light bar underneath it, because there's there's IFF in there as well. There's the secondary array. It's no different from a uh, clamshell on a stick, which is a low-altitude detection radar for the uh, SA-10 and its follow-ons, or the um, tin shield on a stick, which can also be put up on a mast. So you put your radar up on a mast and you get better look down. And But this is where you can run into a problem when you say, oh, it goes down to 15 feet or 15 meters. Yeah, sure it does if you're seven kilometers from the radar. 
So you still have curvature of the Earth. You still have terrain flow. But this is the normal progression for how you would handle acquisition on an S300 or its later models, is you've got a radar that's looking at some distance. And in the original design, it would have been a Big Bird radar battle management. And the, the Big Bird radar would assign tracks to an individual battalion. And so a battalion in Russian terms is a, is a missile battery. And it has its own tin shield acquisition radar, has its own clamshell low altitude acquisition radar. It has its own flap leader tombstone engagement radar. And you just hand down from radar to radar till you get to the engagement. So there was a little bit in the Rusi paper, there was a, a little bit of, of um, fuzziness as to how this function actually goes. But this is just a new acquisition radar. Yes, it's better than older acquisition radars, but it's still subject to curvature of the Earth. You can still defeat it with low altitude, and it still is not really in the right band um, to necessarily act as a target tracking radar in and of itself um it's s-band isn't it from from memory yes that's exactly right uh so s-band for nato guys is a uh, golf band uh that kind of area and it's where you would see your long-range surveillance a uh radars like awax hmm. and so without knowing more about how the radar how big the resolution cell is you know, it is possible that you could use it as a targeting source to target an active missile so that you're lofting an active, but that's going to be a low probability of kill shot because you're expecting the teeny tiny uh, radar on the nose of that missile to pick up all the slop in a look down environment that your big radar wasn't able to do because the radar has a resolution cell. It's so wide, which is defined by the beam width, so high, also defined by the beam width, and so long, despite, uh, defined by the pulse length. And as you get farther away and you need more power to detect a target, your pulse length tends to get longer. That's without me having to discuss pulse compression. But let's just say <laughs> that your pulse either gets longer or it acts like it's longer. Um, and because you just need to put some energy into it. It's just the amount of energy you can put out in order to get a return at long range. And so that means you've got this almost like a, a, a rectangular solid that is a big uncertainty volume. And so that's a tough thing for even an advanced missile to pick up because it's got this teeny tiny radar that's that big around to try and do the search in the end game. So I, I would be considered very doubtful if the radar is magically seeing through trees and hills and stuff to and that to enable low altitude targeting of Ukrainian aircraft. I think that the Ukrainian aircraft that were down by long range shots were line of sight targets. They were higher. Hmm. Speaking of higher, one of the things that was in the article was the reference to the A50, the mainstay, I think it is. Mainstay. So that's their AWACS. And it, its susceptibility to electronic attack and jamming and the fact that it's been largely irrelevant because of that. Does that surprise you? Does that tie in or tally with things that you had learned before about that particular platform? Yeah, so it doesn't surprise me at all because when you're looking at the mainstay is kind of a copy of early E3s. And so the Russians and also the Ukrainians built a number of jammers. Um, and they still have them, by the way, designed to target AWACS and designed to bring down that. So they had the high power. They 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 were in the right band. 
both sides, both the Russians and the Ukrainians, started this fight with jammers designed to take down an AWACS, I think they'd eat a mainstay for lunch. Yeah. Okay. So one last question then, and then we'll move, move on to the um, AMA questions that have been asked. Um, aircrew fatigue. So they talk about the fact that you know there there have been some losses for the VKS and we're 8 months in now 9 months into the into the conflict and aircrew fatigue is probably having an impact it may have been attributable to some of the non combat related mishaps that they've had of late uh, there was that video i think of a MiG 31 going off the runway um you know there there's the Su 25 taking off and rolling into into the dirt um there's there's been various indications that there are um, potentially some issues going on there maintenance is the other question but i wanted to ask about fatigue particularly um when does fatigue start to kick in in that kind of environment? How long can you survive on adrenaline for? Um, I'm, I'm reminded of, you know, I interviewed Cluzo Tolini on this channel about his planning for the Eagles um, during the Desert Storm 1991 and him saying he didn't have enough time, so he just sort of turned a week into eight days. And, you know, he, he sort of, you know, trick-fucked the numbers, if, if you will. So... Everybody was working really hard, flying really hard, and fatigue became an issue. But what's your view on that? Uh, you know, how how would you expect the Russians to be handling aircrew fatigue issues? Badly. Um, so let's 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 take fatigue in two chunks. So the first t- chunk is acute, and when does it start? Fatigue starts when you wake up in the morning. So for a typical fighter mission, um, the Air Force rules are: you have a twelve-hour duty day from the time you wake up in the morning to the time you have to. Uh, have the engines shut down. Now, yes, I know there are 14-hour sorties, so that it's waverable, but that's the the basic peacetime standard and wartime standard, uh, unless you have to go on a really long-range mission. And then there is crew rest, and crew rest is what happens before you show up at the squadron, and you need 12 hours of crew rest. You're out of the squadron, and of that those 12 hours, eight hours, you have to have the opportunity for eight hours of uninterrupted rest. So that's the short-term stuff, and that's why when you look at Air Force mishaps that might be related to fatigue, aviation mishaps, you'll find that if there is a fatigue contributor, it's usually because one or both of those rules has been broken. The second thing is long-term fatigue. So long-term fatigue, uh, this stuff just wears you down. And so in Desert Storm, uh, there was a lot of... I want to say not problems, but difficulties with the 117 guys. You did not have enough 117 guys really to support a well-rested force. And so they were flying night after night after night. And they're also getting reliant on the go pills. And go pills are stimulant. They are 10 milligram pills of dexamphetamine uh, issued by a flight surgeon in small numbers. And they terrify me. I, in, in, Almost 500 combat hours, I've taken two half tabs, both for night combat air patrols, where it was just dead-ass boring. And so that is not the best way of managing fatigue. So when the Air Force learned, when we pulled into Allied Force, the Strike Eagle guys, and set up our composite squadron down in Aviano, we put guys on a fly one out of every three-day schedule. And our schedule was fly day one, you are supervisor of flying or mission planning cell 
day two, day three, you generally had off. And that was it because we did not know how long that fight was going to last. And so you can keep a one out of every three day flying schedule going on forever, particularly if you're deployed and you don't have to deal with the family issues. You don't have to make sure the phone bill gets paid. You're just on somebody else's base um, in a four-star hotel because we are after all the Air Force and flying once every three days. So I doubt that the Russians got anywhere near that. They they didn't plan for a long war. And so I think that there is some acute fatigue going on and long-term fatigue beating down the air crews. And they're going to make mistakes. And I would bet that that MiG-31 running off the edge of the runway was a guy that landed long and fast because he was freaking tired mm-hmm. and no longer had the brain cells to realize he should have gone around. The other thing, and I'll tell you this, so at Allied Force, our commander was Dan Leaf, Fig, great guy, uh, Viper pilot, um, really good uh, general. All, he went on to make three stars, and he was a good dude then, too. He took off one day. He's got two Mark 84s hanging under the wing, 2,000-pound bombs. He goes out, goes into a dive to drop his bombs on a target. Neither of them come off. He now has to bring the aircraft back heavyweight on a wet runway and land it, which he does. And he taxis back, and the safety pins had not been pulled. That's why the bombs did not release. And so instead of tearing a strip off somebody, because uh, I was there in the debrief, and uh, General Leaf just said, we need to make sure that our arming crews are getting more rest. Wow. So that applies to the maintenance side of the house and the weapons loader side of the house is if those guys are worked too hard guys and gals are worked too hard and they will start making errors because despite what guys say there is no working through fatigue you know you don't pump yourself up and feel manly because you're a professional athlete and you've been playing football in high school and by god you fly the f-15c and you're gonna just power through fatigue the fuck you are Okay, people like that die Um, or, you know, they're very, very lucky. So you can't power through fatigue. And the Navy has realized belatedly that you can't power through fatigue after they started running ships into each other. You can't power through fatigue. And uh, that means you need to have a fatigue management program. And I'm confident the Russians don't. Fig, actually, he's got a a channel, I think, where he interviews people. A bit like this, really. Um, Probably... I was going to say better, but that would be disrespectful to you. Better when you're not on. But he 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 talks a little bit about uh, some of his experiences, and I think one of the stories he told was uh, when he lost the brakes in an eagle on taxi, and he and he, I think he must have had I don't know he lost noseville steering, he lost the brakes, he lost everything. Uh, so he flew the saucy, came back, and he thought he was going to die, and it was only through miracle that he didn't. I think his wingtip hit an F sixteen. And that turned the F-15 just enough that he didn't then plow into another another F-16. So, but he thought he thought he was going to die. He seems seems like a nice guy anyway. All right, let's get some questions going from the audience. Um, what I'm going to do is just take some questions from Discord first, and while you're answering them, I'm going to look around and see what um, Nux and what Exchequer have done in terms of uh, adding any other questions from the live audience. But Casimir asked, uh, Stuart B actually asked whether if NATO became involved in the conflict it's likely that Russia has kept anything up its sleeve to perhaps catch NATO out. What do you think? No. Um, I don't think that they, that, uh, not tactically. 
technically they're not going to be holding stuff back waiting for NATO to show up. Um, you play all your tricks when when uh, Cowboy Hughes and I planned the second night strike in Oberver Airfield. We didn't hold back any tricks for later. We pulled back every trick for that strike that we had learned in thousand plus hours of fighter aviation each. Uh, and we played them all up front and it worked. And so that's the way I expect the Russians. There might be some more reserve modes on the electronics that are held back um, because they haven't had a need to use them. And that's what I'd be more wary of. Uh, they they might have abilities to take longer range shots than they actually are. Um, so they might not have flashed all their underwear when they didn't have to. So just because the Russians are taking a 100 kilometer or 100 mile uh, air to air missile shot doesn't mean that they're taking those shots at the maximum aerodynamic range. So there's always a possibility that you haven't seen and a likelihood, in fact, that you haven't seen everything the enemy can throw at you. But tactically, I don't think they're holding anything back. Casimir had asked, and one of the things that is in the Rusi report, which we haven't touched on, and, and um, well, this is the opportunity to do so, is around uh, rotary aviation. So he, he had asked whether or not um, there's much or what it is that the West could be taken away from seeing the rotary aviation fight develop. Um, you know, if you were uh, an Apache or, you know, uh, an army helicopter pilot, what would you be thinking? I'd be thinking, don't stop moving and stay low. So I've seen a number of films of uh, uh, helicopters get bagged from a number of sources. And the Rusi report breaks down, of course, you've got your MI-24 Hinds, and you've got your MI-28 Havocs, and then you've got your KA-52s, which, of course, the Russians call an alligator. The KA-52s are taking it on the chin. Um, and those are the ones where the losses are definitely higher, not counting the three that had demolition charges planted in them uh, at an airfield in Russian by Ukrainian special ops, or let me presumed Ukrainian special operations. Uh, so guys that aren't moving quickly are, guys that are hovering are the ones getting killed by the anti-tag missiles. Guys that aren't moving quickly give a gunner plenty of time. Guys that go high altitude, I'm seeing SA-11s, Ukrainian SA-11s engage helicopters. That should never be happening. You should never have a Russian helicopter high enough where you're potentially within SA-11 range that that system can bag you. And don't get me wrong. I mean, it can get, uh, the SA-11 can get pretty low, and the Russians have always advertised a home-on-helicopter mode. But if your line of sight to an SA-11 is still a line of sight weapon, you are way too high. So... You have to stay moving, um, and you have to be low, and those are keys. There are other technical things um, that the the beam rider. We talked about the beam rider missiles, so I'm going to use the analogy so people understand it. So, a laser guided bomb or something uh, that is a semi active laser has a seeker in the nose of the weapon, and it's looking for the reflection. So, the previous analogy I used was. Your cat is a semi-active laser seeker. You take your laser pointer, you put it against the wall, and your cat's going to follow that little spot all the way around because its receivers are its eyes. It sees the laser spot. It goes back. A beam rider is backwards. The seeker on a beam rider is in the back of the missile, and it's looking for this long line, and it tries to stay in the middle of the line. And the operator with the beam rider just needs to keep it pointing at the target. But the operator needs to be pretty much stationary in order for that to work. 
The advantage of the beam rider is that it can't be jammed. The disadvantage is, again, you have to have a pretty close to stationary shooter. And the way I can explain this is you have a lightsaber and I'm going to give you an extra long lightsaber. And you know those, when you hang a tire by a rope from a tree to make a swing, you're going to stick your lightsaber through that tire and you're going to poke the tree. And as long as you don't move, you can see and you don't touch the tire and nothing gets hurt. The moment you walk, your lightsaber moves off to the side and now you slice through the tire. The tire is the seeker, the aft-looking seeker for the missile. Once you once you cut through the tire, it can no longer see the laser beam or your lightsaber emitter, as the case may be. And that is why the Russians, who use both radio and laser beam rider missiles, are proving that that is just not a good anti-tank system. And that's, also the, that's the main weapon for the K-52, isn't it? So that's one of the... It's um, yes, it's also for the uh, uh, for the twenty eight, um, and could be for the Hind unless they're using older wire guided systems, mm. um, which they're still technically capable of. And now that I know that the Russians are issuing World War II helmets to conscripts, I'm never going to assume that anything is out of the inventory. And I I I'm amazed. Can you imagine how much money the Russians could have made on eBay by selling genuine, unused Red Army helmets from 1945? They'd have made a mint. Yeah, could have afforded to have made new ones. Somewhere. Yes, exactly. They could have afforded new ones because there's plenty of people out there that would have, oh, yeah, great, I'll buy this on eBay, morons. See, if they were capitalists, they'd be in better shape. So... Ustio had asked on Discord a similar question, so I won't go through all of it. But at the end, he had asked about sort of the Kiowa warrior and, uh, you know, sort of the hunter, hunter scout type um, scenario between the Kiowa and the, and the Apache. And I'm, I was trying to remember, and I'm showing my ignorance here, what the cause was for such high, uh, in relative terms, losses for the Apaches in March 2003. Um, because that was a force that had been, you know, the U.S. Army uh, Apache force had been optimized for killing armor, I guess, in sort of Central Europe, and was now fighting a um, uh, a threat that was in an urban environment. And I'm trying to remember whether or not they lost quite a few because they were moving around or because they weren't standing off. Do you remember what what lessons yeah, they learned so from that? There were a couple things. Um, one, they had trained for European environment. And this I'm all getting from reports, right? I didn't fly helicopters, and as we all know, I missed Desert Storm. So I'm, I'm looking at reports that may not capture the whole picture. But the first is, is, is that they had trained to fire from a hover. But more important in the case of the Apache losses is that doctrinally, the Army had not let gone of the idea that they were going to do deep interdiction with their helicopters, and they were going to go behind enemy lines, like potentially 100 miles behind enemy lines, and they were going to schwack something. And they tried that, and they lost Apaches doing it because it was a bad idea to surround yourself when you're at low altitude. Even if you're moving, you're relatively slow. Surround yourself with people shooting at you and see what happens. What happens is you're going to lose aircraft. And they did. Um, the difference that I am told between the the Sea Cobras that the Marines flew and in, in Desert Storm and the Apaches that the Army flew in Desert Storm was that the Marines never got below 90 knots and of course they didn't do deep interdiction so speed matters because it takes a lot of your ballistic gunnery out of the question and um kind of reduces the time that a gunner with a more advanced system has 
the other aspect that that the remember that the longbow apache has that mushroom on top of the rotor that contains the longbow radar that's designed for a european conflict so the average tree height in europe is like 80 to 120 feet and you would just pop your mushroom up above the tree line and paint your targets and then launch a bunch of radar hellfires uh long fire variant hellfires over the tree line where they could lock on after launch uh, based on your radar painting it. And you had a data link, so you can pass only one guy in the foreship needs to pop his mushroom, so to speak. Um, and it could feed off targeting data to everybody else. So if you design yourself to function that way, where you're spending maximum time and cover minimum exposure and keep your speed up, I think uh, things will go much better. And I, those are all lessons learned from uh, from the Gulf War, certainly. Hmm. Okay, we are an hour in, and I'm aware that we've still got. I mean, there's a, there's loads of questions in the uh, general uh, mill aviation AMA, so I I want to try and uh, zip through some of these. And so, um, Crazy G Man's asking, do you think there was incorporation of harm and high Mars, where harm sorties would be used to help suppress enemy air defense, to help follow up high Mars strikes? No, I think it's backwards. I think it's entirely possible that uh, uh, rounds were fired at targets uh, with harms kind of ready behind them in case the Russians brought up their radars to deal with the HIMARS. This is purely supposition on my part. The Russians claim to have downed HIMARS, but I've seen no evidence of it. And the Institute for the Study of War said last week they've seen no evidence for it either. But even if the Russians were trying or trying to bring their radars up, we call it stimulating the threat. So you throw your missile or, you know, your wild weasel in first, see if the radar comes up and then toss the harm, not the other way around. So no preemptive shots then? If your timing were really good and you had a good idea on what your target radar was and where they were, you could try a preemptive shot. Okay. Uh, lots of questions. So let's see what else we've got. Um, uh, Jing Zhang has asked a couple of questions, which I think we covered in the last episode. So around um, the difficulties of intercepting drones, uh, low-level drones and, and that kind of stuff with the Naiads. I think you talked about that last time. So, uh, Jin, I would say go back and watch the last episode. because uh, Yeah, but I'm going to hit that it. again. You want to hit it again? Okay. I want to hit it again because of what we're seeing the Ukrainians do. So, um, the the missile duel, the, the missiles will still work against your relatively low. So, let's, let's talk about a drone at a thousand feet cruising in, and I'm talking about the Shahed 131-136 type of of cruise missile-like drones. Um, those are worth a missile, and the Ukrainians will use it, but they're also we're also seeing a lot more gun-based operations. And the 35-millimeter rounds from the Gepard, the German anti-aircraft tank, have apparently been eating the Shahids for lunch. Um, that's based on Ukrainian reports. So that is the best gun-based anti-aircraft system they have. Um, it shocks me because the ZSU-23-4 Shilka should work within its range for that kind of environment, but it may be a radar limitation. It may be that the radar um, is just not uh, living up to that. And I would have expected the the Pansier-based stuff, SA-19, SA-22, um, to do well, but of course, 
uh, those are, are are mostly on the wrong side, aside from the captured ones. I, I was reading that they need to change the barrels on those Gepards, though. I don't know whether or not they are getting the uh, sort of logistical support they need to be able to continue using them. I don't know if that's true, but um, okay. Yeah, so probably a thousand rounds they need to change the barrels. Yeah. Um, okay, so. Andrew's asking about uh, when it comes to avionics and switchology design, do you have any insight on who decides? Okay, so I think this actually is a general question rather than a, a Ukraine question, so we'll come back to that, Andrew. Um, Neuropilot wants to know, are the Ukrainians getting any more MiG-29s or Su-27s from other sources? Um, and uh, he's asking whether or not there's any donated Su-30s. You, you have any, any intel on, on whether or not they've been bolstered in any res in any respect? Nobody is talking about it, but the deals are still being offered. So there's this, the Dutch just came up this week and said, we'll pull some of our F-16s out of storage and give them to people if they supply MiG-29s uh, to Ukraine. So there is still, um, dis there are still discussions going on about moving aircraft forward, but whether or not that has actually happened, I have no idea. And, but that's what I'd expect. If those, if the MiG-29s or Su-27s or anything else moves forward into Ukraine, I don't expect either side to say a darn thing until the war is all over. Okay. Because there's no benefit to saying it. There's no benefit to giving the Russians better numbers, and there's no benefit to admitting that fighter aircraft are being supplied to Ukraine. Uh, Jester's asked why Russian Soviet doctrine always seems to shoot two missiles. There's that, there's that video. I don't know if it's representative. It was released by the Russians. It shows the Su-35S with uh, two, three rippling three R-77s against a single target by the looks of it, around about 70-kilometer range. Uh, I don't know if that's a, a deception to release that or if that's just something that they shouldn't have done, but um, that, that was a ripple of three missiles. Uh, what do you know doctrinally then about the way the Russians do business in that regard? So I had to ask this question myself as to whether or not it was hardwired into like the MiG-29 and the, the Su-27. It's not apparently hardwired. So you can shoot one. Doctrinally, you shoot two. And the simple reason is it increases your probability of kill. Um, you know, so U.S., we tend to do a shoot-look-shoot shoot fighters. Um, but every guy has a brief you know, that they will brief their instructional brief says, these are the times when you go shoot, shoot. Uh, and if you are not facing the onrushing, you know, hordes of Soviet or uh, People's Liberation Army Air Force, then you don't need to conserve missiles and shooting two will always get you a higher PK. And you want to paint that symbol on the side of your airplane. So shoot two. PK is probability of kill. Sorry if I skipped over that. Okay, and I thought I saw a question about R seventy seven somewhere in here. Let me have a quick look. Yeah. Okay. I thought I thought somebody had asked about an R seventy seven in the chat, and I can't see it. So we'll we'll take one more question on Ukraine. Okay, and then we'll and then we'll move on. I think. Um, let's see what we've got. We'll go to the Discord just to try and make it even. So Yeti nineteen eighteen he'll ask a what if type question. But supposing Ukraine comes out of this in good shape, how does it go about securing itself from future attack? 
and in particular, how would it go about rebuilding its air arm? All right, so that's a great question, and I and and I knew we were going to get to that. So there's been a lot of ongoing discussion. It happens every week. Why don't we give F-16s to Ukraine? Why don't we give F-15s to Ukraine? So the two-part question is, this is not easy. Um, and transitioning from a Soviet-designed aircraft to a Western-designed aircraft is doable, but it is not easy. And the, the Poles did it from MiG-29s to uh, Block 52, I believe, F-16s. It took them 10 years to get that done. The Finns did a very rapid transition from MiG-21 with a big engine to the F-18s, but they also... Um, that was they went the generational step and the to the Western in one shot. So they didn't have they never had MiG-29s. They didn't have the things they needed to unlearn or anything like that. But the important thing here is, is we know that that Ukrainian aviators are talented. We know that they've had some degree of Western training and the ones that are still around are obviously pretty good at their jobs. One of the reasons that red flag exists, in fact, the primary reason that the red flag series of exercises exists is that. What the Air Force found after Vietnam was that the majority of aviators had been shot down and been shot down on their first 10 missions. And so red flag gets you through your first 10 missions. Well, now you have a situation where you take a fighter pilot experienced in his MiG-29, you transition him to an F-16 in Arizona, you send him back out. When do you send him back out? You send him back out when he graduates from the formal training unit, he's got 80 hours. And it might as well be as if his 10 mission clock is going to start all over again. Um, I would not, at at 60 hours in the Strike Eagle, when I showed up at Lake and Heath, I was not the same guy that I was with 500 hours in the Strike Eagle a year and a half later. And so that time makes a huge difference. So the short term is that we're probably better off to follow two tracks. One is to feed the machine with the Russian built and Russian designed systems. And the second is to separate out some Ukrainian aviators who are gonna train on Western aircraft and that we don't expect them to be combat ready for three years. And I'd work two tracks. And I think that the funding stream for that Congress has passed in the latest National Defense Authorization Act, but I, I don't know if it survived conference. The other thing is the question is, okay, well, we're going to have to transition them to Ukraine to Western anyway. What aircraft would you pick? Is it the F-16? Is it the Gripen? Is the Hornet? I'm going to say initially it's none of those. It's a combat variant of the T-7, which is the Boeing trainer, uh, the Red Tail. And the reason I say that is because that aircraft has a significant amount of excess capacity. It is very fighter-like. But the second reason I say it is that Ukraine has an aviation industry that they are able to build. You know, they, they built aircraft, they, they build avionics, they, they have that infrastructure there. It's been damaged. And I think that if they were essentially the manufacturer, if they were to license build combat variants of the T-7 for their own use, they're getting all the bang for the buck. They're getting a Western-designed, modern aircraft capable of defensive counter air once you go to a fighter version and they're getting to build it 
using Western techniques. And the T7 is built with what's called non-monument manufacturing, meaning you don't need an assembly line. Mm. Yeah. And so that's the way if I were doing a rebuild, I would do it because I'm not only concerned with let's get the Ukrainians uh, better Western gear, but also what does the Ukrainian industry and aviation industry look like you know, at the end of the war, a year after the war, five years after the war. And so I would take a totally different path than just focus on shoveling used Western aircraft at them. I think there's an opportunity here. Okay. Well, I think we, uh, at an hour and 10 minutes in, I think we can move on, or we should move on rather, so we don't uh, end up um, busting too badly through the two-hour mark. There's a ton of questions for General Mall Aviation, as, as I referenced earlier. But I would say to everybody who's listening and who posted a question that didn't get answered, um, don't be disheartened because we actually, on the Discord channel, we have a, a separate thread. I don't know how he does it, but he does do it, uh, where if we, we will dump the questions that didn't get answered into it, and Starbaby will come along over the course of whenever is convenient for him next week or two, and he will answer your questions. Um, but he'll do it in text rather than in person so um, don't be disheartened if you ask a question and we didn't get to it because i'm pretty sure um you know existing commitments notwithstanding that star baby will come onto the discord server and and try and answer those questions for you and i'm every bit as funny in text as i am live i just love that you said to me when we first met you said i don't do social media i'm not no i'm not gonna go on discord i don't do that and now and now you're just you're, you're probably the most active person Actually, our Discord's no, really. Our Discord. I know. I'm teasing. Our Discord's really good. We've got. Uh, we we were looking, or someone someone was on the Discord was looking at a competitor's Discord channel recently, and they said, "God, they got loads of members, but it's dead. There's no conversation going on, and we've got tons of, of good stuff happening." So anyway, it's just text communication, just like texting on my so that's, phone. That's that's just your get out for saying I don't do social media, and then saying that's not social media because it's just text. That yep, just that's means right. you, that just means that like me, you're old. Um, Oh, that is also it does, true. It doesn't mean you don't do social media. Anyway, all right. Yes, it does. So now, listen, uh, there is, uh, I'm, I'm guessing there is somebody called Sedlo listening. Um, actually, Sedlo is a really big supporter of the channel. He's been one of the earlier supporters. He makes contributions all the time. And I wanted to be able to just pay back a tiny bit uh, for his support over the last few years. And he's really active on Discord too. Um, he is, uh, I don't know what he does actually, his day job um i think he might be listening to this and if he is hey sedlo how you doing um but he is in his free time a mission designer for um the dcs uh, combat simulation series and he has put together a bunch of free content um, in the form of the bold cheetah um, f-18 hornet campaign and i've played a few of the missions they're really really good he he does them as freeware which means you don't have to pay for them and if you're not a DCS fan, I, I apologize if this bit's a bit boring, go make a cup of tea or you know, use the bathroom or whatever. Uh, but I want to play the two-minute video that he has put out there um, for the Bold Cheetah campaign. He's also got a BFM trainer, which is also free. And once we've finished this conversation, I will put links to both of those in the description. Um, but please show him uh, your support. He's great because not only does he do this stuff, but he also then fixes bugs. So when people come in and comment and say well it was great but i found a bug he'll, he'll go in and fix it so uh, i'm going to play that video it's only two minutes and we'll consider this the interlude enjoy attention on flight deck launch 
Impressive. Um, Sedlow, thanks for your support. I uh, hope that you get lots of traction with the campaign and everybody's listening. If you're into DCS, please go and grab that. Show your support to Sedlow. So, um, on the topic of interludes, I, I'm going to my, say my usual spiel, which is that I can see 120-odd concurrent viewers at the moment, uh, but only 66 likes, which is not the ratio I was looking for. So, hey, if you are enjoying this content, it's free. It's not behind a paywall. There's no adverts other than that one for Sedlow. Uh, which I think is well-deserved, and your appreciation could be expressed uh, quite easily by hitting the thumbs-up button if you like it. And if you don't like it, uh, genuinely say why. What is it that you would expect to see? What is it you want to see? Uh, how could we improve it? Um, and obviously, you can't say well, you could go away and just leave Star Baby on his own because that wouldn't really work. It's my, it's my channel, although he is the star. So, um, all right. So, And you're muted, by the way, Star Baby, so people can't hear you listen, laughing at me, which is, which is good. Um, so, on to the next topic, which is, if I get rid of that and bring this up here. Oh, this is uh, the Bold Cheetah campaign page on um, the DCS website. I should have brought that up earlier, but I didn't. Okay. Anyway, so the sort of wildcard conversation uh, then with you, Star Baby, today is going to be around this news that came out a couple of weeks ago that uh, British RAF... Um, fast jet pilots and some helicopter pilots apparently have been uh, training the PLAF, the People's Liberation Army Air Force, I believe, uh, Chinese Air Force, how to uh, fly their fast jets. I think it's a sort of training pipeline thing rather than a front, front line thing. I don't think they're teaching at the FTU or the RTU or the B course or the OCU, depending on which country you come from. They're not teaching you how to teaching them how to take sort of J11s or you know J20s and 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 be sort of. Um, you know, combat effective, but they're teaching them the basics of how to be a fast jet pilot, which I guess, you know, uh, and maybe even uh, Wizzos and, and Navigators too. So but they're the building blocks. So I guess if you get those those bits right, then the chances are you're going to be much more able to spend time thinking about how to be a good sort of tactical fighter pilot or whatever. So, you know, from my point of view, I, I wonder, you know, some people say, well, they're not really teaching them how to be fighter pilots, but actually this they are, and they're teaching them a mentality and, and presumably um, infusing them with some of the things that have taken us a long time to get right. Um, at any rate, uh, that's the um, the story. I read recently also that um, there has been an American um, in Australia who's been arrested under a sealed arrest warrant, which means we don't know why, but he has um, apparently been for some years teaching the Chinese the same sorts of things, and there's even the possibility that some Australians are involved in it too. One of the forums that I go to, which is the uh, PP Rune website, which is 
is kind of interesting. There are a few ex-RAF fast jet types on there who say that this has been going on for years and the British MOD has known about it for years. So um, there's some depth to it as well. And I was going to suggest, this is where I get a a little bit, um, a little bit sort of on my soapbox about some things that aren't really relevant to this, but I'm going to do it anyway. I was going to suggest going and watching, for anybody who's interested in a breakdown of the, the PLAF and their... Uh, training pipeline and, and the way that they train their fighter pilots and their fighter air crew. I was going to go s- suggest going and, and, t- and looking at the Millennium 7 History Tech channel. They've got a video. He's a great guy, this 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 guy. I think he's uh, an aerospace engineer. I think he, he's from Italy. I've learned so much from watching his channel. Um, but I was going to suggest going and watching this. And then I noticed there's just, uh, it's a 25-minute video. And for less than two seconds, this is on the screen, which is that the basis for the video is by a journalist called um, uh, Andreas Ruprecht, I think is, is how you say it. Andreas Ruprecht, I'm not sure. Um, which I thought was a bit cheeky, a bit disappointing, really, that he's using that guy as the source. Uh, there's no description, uh, well, there's no link in the description of the video to buy the book. And he's referenced for less than two seconds. And as an ex-aviation journalist, and perhaps soon to be aviation journalist again, uh, that kind of stuff really gets under my skin. So I would say to people, uh, go go ahead and watch the Millennium Seven History Tech video. Enjoy it. Thumbs up if you like it. Give the guy your support. Uh, I I think he's great. But if you really want to uh, exercise some payback for the knowledge that you generate from watching that, then go and buy Andreas's book. It's not cheap. Um, but that would be my suggestion. I think that would be the fair thing to do. Now, with that out of the way, Starbaby, tell me, how do you feel about it? What do you think is the right thing or or, or, or whether, you know, if, if it's not the right thing and, and it's not acceptable to go and pay, uh, train the, the Chinese, you know, what, what what is acceptable? Where do you draw the line between sort of being a mercenary and, and um, you know, just being a, I don't know, a capitalist? Yeah, so I think it's a foul. Um, there's not a whole lot of it depends here. If you are in any way contributing to the development of Chinese military aviation, you're on the wrong side of the fence. And for ex-Royal Air Force or you know former U.S. Marine Corps, in the case of our, uh, our Harrier pilot that got busted in Australia, that's a foul. I mean, it's not even close. There's no way you should be advising the the Chinese in any capacity with respect to their military aviation. Um, If you were teaching them to fly a better instrument approach in an Airbus A319, uh, when there's so much pollution around that you're below two miles worth of visibility, I'm all for that. That's great. Uh, But uh, giving any military assistance uh, is definitely a foul. And... There's a long tradition of the Royal Air Force and the U.S. Department of Defense assisting Middle Eastern countries, uh, the Saudis being among the most heinous, but they are still technically allies. So, you know, while um, I'm not big fans of the Saudis, it wouldn't be it wouldn't raise my hackles. Right. They're they're technically an allied force. Uh, they get allied military equipment. They they train in the United States. So it's not something that you wouldn't be going against U.S. government policy. But since neither uh, the King's military nor the United States Department of Defense are in a defense relationship where they're training with the Chinese, that's just a foul. And 
uh, I'm thrilled to see at least the U.S. Justice Department uh, issuing an indictment. What do you think, you know, my supposition is that the building blocks of being uh, a good uh, pilot or fighter aircrew, you know, if they're instilled in you, then by the time you do get to the B course or the FTU, you, you have more capacity and more likely to be successful in how to learning how to employ an aircraft as a weapon system. Uh, is that a valid uh, supposition? Do you think that there's some truth to that? I mean, is what is the damage that they, these people may be causing? Ah, okay. So the damage is the the People's Liberation Army and all of its branches. So remember, everything is a People's Liberation Army um, kind of function. And the PLA is a party military, not a professional military. And it's a party military that hasn't fought a large-scale war since the Korean War. Although it's had minor events, you know, they, they, they did um, get their butts kicked by the Vietnamese in 1979. And there have been a couple exchanges over islands over the years. Um, and, of course, they did successfully invade Tibet. But they don't have institutional knowledge on how to fight tactically, how to organize themselves operationally. And we have none of our citizens, or in the Royal Air Force's case, subjects, have any business whatsoever uh, adding to any institutional knowledge that the People's Liberation Army doesn't have and needs. Uh, there's they they can only help the Chinese and thereby hurt uh, everybody else who might be a victim of Chinese aggression. And when you're looking at two countries like Russia and China that have a vested interest in destabilizing the post-World War II order, because they are neither of them is on top of it, um, then you have to be extra cautious. So, yeah, I think they can provide some help. We'll see. We'll see what the indictment is. But even if. You know, again, for a, a um, somebody with a UK passport, you may not technically be in violation of the Official Secrets Act, but you're still assisting a potential adversary military. Do you think it's okay to simply say, "Well, you know, we live in a capitalist society; we are, you know, free to make our choices"? The certainly in the case of the MOD, we have. Chinese students, a small number, have come to Cranwell to go through the uh, university uh, that, that is there. And I know that in 2016, we apparently sent some fighter guys over to China to help them learn aviation English. But do you think that it's okay then, having set that tone, for someone to just say, well, look, you know, if the Royal Air Force or whoever it is is going to treat me badly and, and not take care of my financial security and not look after my future, which is the accusation that is, is regularly leveled against the, the RAF at least, that, that there's um, some sympathy that is deserved? Yeah, so, no, you get no sympathy there. Um, the, the line there is that even if you are training uh, Chinese pilots, and if we were training Chinese pilots, uh, that's not a tactical kind of thing. That is teaching somebody the basics of aviation, and it is completely different from teaching somebody how to employ their aviation uh, in in supportive military operations. It's this is not an easy, uh, or sorry, this is really a very easy dividing line. Okay, uh, uh, training somebody in aviation skills, fine. You know, training somebody combat aviation skills, not fine. Hmm. Let's see whether or not there's any commentary from the chat. 
before we move on then. So Yeah. Uh Sedlow does say in today's friends might be tomorrow's enemies, which is an excellent point. Um you should also remember that today's enemies could be tomorrow's friends, but if they are, we can train them then, not now while they're still today's enemies. Well, um, that, that, the, that, that, that's the obvious link, isn't it? So we were just talking about um, the, the question was, how do you rebuild Ukraine's air force? There was some touching upon where they are now in terms of um, the complexity around uh, teaching guys to fly and girls, you know, to fly complex fast jets. And the obvious thing that we didn't really talk about, and I was waiting until we'd had this conversation, was whether or not you could have contractors, whether or not you could get a force of Grippens. I mean, you know, if we go right back an hour an hour ago, we were talking about mismatch, technical um, um, overmatch between the um, A uh, AA thirteen and the R twenty seven. And okay, well, get them, give them some Grippens, put Meteor on it, get some contract pilots to come in, and then you've got the question of okay, well, how? Because you know, if we if we think back a year and a half, let's say, and the way some media outlets were talking about Ukraine um, and, you know, how some, you know, political entities in both of our countries viewed U Ukraine, that's changed quite a bit. Now they've been invaded. Where will it be when, what, where will the sympathies lie? How will we view them when the war is over? And what, what will happen to all the weaponry and the training that we gave them? Um, so you, you kind of end up back in the same conversation. Um, yeah, so... You end up in a conversation anytime you're dealing with that. And we, we have had some you know notable losses like the Iranian Revolution in 1979. You know, the only guys to fly Tomcats. Um, and they're still flying their Tomcats. But remember that it, that there's two issues here. One, if you're going to go with a contract pilot route, which is not a stupid idea, you still also have to go with contract maintenance. Somebody needs to foot the bill for that. And you actually have to enlist those people in the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, in order to make that work legally. Otherwise, they are definitely mercenaries, and that, that is a law of armed conflict issue um, and a Geneva Convention issue. So that's a that's a tough challenge there. Although I'm not sure the Russians really would make a distinction anywhere, the way they have, have apparently treated some of the genuine members of the Ukrainian armed forces who are sort of expatriates in the UK or the US and have been in their armed forces. Yeah, but there's no time. point in making it any easier for them. Um, you know, the point. fact is that, yes, while, the, again, the Russian treatment of POWs is absolutely war crime, um, the don't don't make it easier for the, the, them to justify war crimes in the international community, and flying mercenaries is one of them. Plus, I actually think U.S. law has a... The, they wouldn't be U.S. mercenaries, Um Unless, of course, the U.S. hires them like your Blackwater and then, you know, Blackwater Enterprises losing the war one unnecessary civilian casualty at a time. Uh, so I've seen those guys and their clown act in the field, too. So yeah. um, not a good advertisement for mercenaries, really. OK, let's let's move on because we've got a ton of uh, AMAs. Um, oh, one, one quick question for you. B-21, what do you reckon? What do you reckon? All I know about the B-21, uh, and I don't know it, I just have a high confidence, is that there will be a B-52 flyby for the B-21's retirement. That's, that's It's a, almost a certainty, isn't it? Yep. You get no points for being right on that one. Uh, sorry. <laughs> okay, so let's go to the uh, AMA. So Exchequer has asked, uh, would the F-14 have made a good CD platform? Um even supplanting 
the mighty CJ or the other uh, two-seater platform? Um, no, because it had its radar warning gear was trash. You could have changed um, that. So, so at the time, you would have had to do the kind of renovation that you ended up doing with the F4G. Um, and then in that case, if you had an ECMO in the back uh, and harms on the wing stations um, and an actual receiver processor unit designed for targeting, it might have made a fine weasel. But that's, that's like, you know, great. If, if Scooby-Doo vans could fly, then you could fit four people in them and they'd be a prowler. Okay. That's, might, might have to be, that might have to go on a T-shirt. I don't know. Um Gravel King. Okay. So he's asking, um, in light of recent efforts to damage the Ukrainian infrastructure with saturation attacks using cheap and dumb drones, are we to expect to see more of that in future conflicts? Um, and do you think Iran can produce enough drones? Oh, we're back to Ukraine again. This is this is in the wrong section. This, shouldn't, this should have been a Ukrainian question, but let, let's go with it anyway. Oh, do, do you think you think you can build enough drones to make them impactful? Uh, and are we going to see drone wars as the the way ahead? Uh, we're going to see drone wars as part of the way ahead. The problem with drone wars in, in this particular case is they're not working. Um, it is in no way diminishing Ukrainian military capability. It is causing additional pain for the population, and they're not going to give in because of it. So it's just another means of doing your air-delivered terror attack and because of that, low-end practitioners who think that they were going to be the first to make an air-delivered terror attack work are going to try it out. That means, however, that Western nations have to be prepared for this, and we have to get off our high-cost interceptor against low-cost drone model. Um, because, you know, you take a look at a surface-to-air missile, um, and it's going to engage everything from a hovering helicopter to, you know, potentially a, a fast jet pulling lots of G's, you know, with ECM. That That is a broad range. That means an expensive interceptor. If you're going for a drone that's under 200 knots or you want to target just a helicopter or something like that, that would be great. One of the problems the U.S. has is that we have no research and development infrastructure that's really designed to support a rapid turn. I mean, I literally know a guy with a, an interceptor design um, they could probably be built in a, a mom-and-pop machine shop uh, out of commercially available chips for the flight control system. you know. And the guy I'm talking about basically works for a U.S. government asset, and there's no, there's no process. Who can he send that to? Who can he ask for money? How can we field it? So we're not only seeing a failure to anticipate this threat, which is going to continue to be a threat, but we're seeing... Uh, a devolution of national industrial and research capability that that has been a long slide since Vietnam, whereby we're not prepared to react to this kind of thing in short notice. So there will be more, and um, Ukraine won't be the only victim, and we have to not only come up with some solutions, but we need to posture so that we can come up with rapid solutions for the next uh, whole card that somebody slams down on the table. It does raise an interesting question around ownership, doesn't it? I mean, I'm I'm sort of thinking back to 
the sort of Vietnam era where there was the tussle between or or you know potentially the uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure if it's a tussle or if it was just a disagreement around who would own close air support whether it would be the air force or the army and then you know the air force got the a10 so they stayed with it and i just wonder you know thinking about loyal wingman that kind of very high-tech program i think there's some evidence elsewhere that the air force in you know in behind closed doors has been investing in that sort of serious technology quite um heavily um do you think that the anti-drone piece should be owned by the army or the air force? Because you you know you're not going to use loyal wingman against the Shahid. Right. So ground in U.S. doctrine, ground-based air defense belongs to the U.S. Army. I would not leave this up to the U.S. Army because they have no interest in ground-based air defense. So I would say that the first, in terms of the U.S. Department of Defense, the first guys to come up with a process that can field the system um, should freaking field the system and you worry about who controls it later. Uh, you know, the, the, but, but, that but is it does, that, it does matter because it's funding, though, doesn't it? I mean, it's got to come out of somebody's purse. So does it does it not really matter first who who owns it and then second what it is? Um, yes. But when you look at like, for example, the Quick Strike ER, Quick Strike J, um, which are a precision aerial delivered mines. That's a Navy mission. They manage all the mine warfare stuff. But delivery of mines is also a bomber mission. And since the quick strikes are designed or are, are derived from JDAM uh, bodies, the bombers are you know pretty much ready to plug and play. But the initial funding for quick strike ER was a couple of 06s at Pacific Air Forces, myself included, uh, going to General Carlisle, the four star, and getting $400,000 to do a demo. And so the Air Force did the first demo for a Navy mission that is now a Navy and did the first flight tests for a Navy weapon that is now operational in the U.S. Navy and employable by the U.S. Air Force. And it did not come through Navy processes. Uh, and we did that, you know, $400,000, five months. Uh, getting the, the ball rolling should not worry about a service lane. That's one of our problems. All right, uh, so Single Sprocket has asked uh, a non-aviation question, which is cool. So he talks about how you were vocal about your love for the F4G, but what cars did you drive? Oh, yeah, this is a great question. So, man, this is this is not embarrassing because I'm quite pleased with it. Okay, so <laughs> this is the whole aviator car thing. And when you go to pilot training or nav training, you're you're really getting a paycheck for the first time in your life that what didn't involve you working food services on work study at college right so you know chances are you weren't uh making huge piles of cash and you're gonna go out and buy a car and so we see the mustangs and you know maybe we see a corvette and uh you know people who are prior enlisted and already have families they're way more practical but in the 90s the car was the ford explorer the SUV kind of thing, you know, despite the fact that you would never go off-road with it, the Ford Explorer was a thing. And we had a couple of guys with sports cars and so on. I drove a 1973 American Motors Hornet, possibly the most embarrassing fighter aviator car that wasn't a deliberate, you know, let's be embarrassing choice. It was my college car. I got it with 10,000 miles on it for 200 bucks. I carried spare parts and tools in the trunk because I could fix it by the side of the road. And to make things extra painful for the rest of the squadron, I had a Nevada Phantom II license plate. 
And this thing would park in this quadrant in the 90s, a 1973 American Motors Hornet. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the Hornet, you may remember, uh, it might have been Live and Let Die, but it was a Roger Moore, I think, uh, James Bond movie set somewhere down in the bayous, Louisiana, where a Hornet with a V8 makes the longest bridge jump, stunt jump ever. Okay, It's this ridiculous car with a long front end because you had to be able to fit a V8 in it and this truncated back that they pretended was economical. Uh, American Motors Hornet. So, yes, you can tell, you know, there there is a, a kind of thing, you know, where you want to have a car. As you get older, you know, plenty of aviators have to go to minivans, as embarrassing and humiliating as that is, but they will go back if they actually can. I'm not a car person. I drove a 73 Hornet until I was a mid-level captain. Um, and then uh, I transitioned to the minivan, and then I went from the minivan to the Toyota Prius. And I'm oh, now on my third Toyota Prius. And I will tell you that my Toyota Prius has a heads-up display, and it has a LiDAR, and it has a radar, um, and it gets 60 miles per gallon. And the color is actually called hypersonic red. I did not make that up. Um, because, you know, you buy a Corvette, you can do 120 miles an hour. But where? You have to be out in the West someplace with no cops around. I could get 60 miles per gallon everywhere I drive. There you go. Toyota Prius. As we've already previously guessed, I'm kind of an outlier in this respect. <laughs> okay, so so speaking of uh, of outlier Spectre Pilot, who just, I think he... He 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 might end up coming in on the channel for an interview if he ever gets his act together. Um, but he's just giving me shit here because he's saying, "Star baby, what's the NATO nomenclature for Steve's upper lip?" It's not mop, is what he's asking. Oh well, the first thing I thought was porn stash, uh, but I can't do any better than that. I mean, I think if you look through the comments, there's a there's a couple comments on there. Oh, and surely not. There, yes, there are, and there are some memes forthcoming. So I'm going to leave that to our resident artists and humorists to dissect that particular little caterpillar-like thing. Brilliant. Well, this is only a few days of, well, 10 days of, of growth. I mean, you know, the next time we do one, it will be bushy and um, wholesome and fully impressive. Yeah, but because you're a Brit, you have to wax it. It's traditional. <laughs> you have little curly ends, you know, little wax That's thing. That's the French. Like, like Poirot. You stole it from the French. Come on, look at any Royal Air Force like group captain during the Second World War. True. Fair enough. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay, I take your point. Okay, anyone tuning in at this point is going to think, "What is this?" Uh, I thought I was tuning in to hear about um, modern air power. Clearly not. Right. Uh, so, um, so Neuropilot, you've asked what the origins of the Star Baby call sign are. Um, he does. Star Baby does in one of our videos um, explain that. I think probably. I think it's Wild Weasel 3. I'll put a link in the description anyway afterwards. No, it so might you, be the so cockpit you, tour. Might be the cockpit tour. Okay, one of the videos he, he answers that. So I won't ask a question because he's already answered it, but we'll move on to the next one, which is uh, Jester's asking, are the Russians got Link 16? Um, he's also asking if they're utilizing the, A the A50. We've already talked about that, but have the Russians got Data Link? Yes, they've had Data Link for decades. I have no idea how it works. Um they actually have, or they advertise a unified series of data links. So the Air Force has a data link, and the Army Ground Forces has a data link, and the Army, the, the Air Defense Forces have their separate data link, 
and they are now supposed to be all compatible. And I can't remember the Russian name for it. Um, but indications are in Ukraine that their data link system has not been working as well as it's advertised. And if it's like their radios, because they never load the crypto or they didn't put all the good components in it to begin with, um, I wouldn't expect their data link to move to work much better. However, remember that the when the the Russians have had data link for a very long time in their fighters, because that was how they received electronic instructions from ground control intercept radars, is that was a direct couple to indicators in the airplane and in some cases to the autopilot, where essentially the aircraft was being flown from the ground. The U.S. had the same thing. Uh, we had the semi-automatic ground environment, SAGE. And the F-102, F-106, the Air Defense Command, when we still had an Air Defense Command interceptors, um, data link's longstanding thing. Everybody's got data link. Uh, the the Thais have their own national data link alongside Link 16, built by Ericsson, a Swedish company. Uh, yeah, it's it's a thing. Okay, so um, here's a great question. Thoughts on the E3 today and the E7? So with radars, uh, this is from Jester, with radars and fighters being what they are today with Acer, etc., what does an A7 bring, an E7 rather, bring to the table? Um, and is the E3 today pretty much kaput? Well, so the E3 is not kaput. I mean, the E3 has undergone some steady upgrades, but you're still doing a lot of upgrades to a design that is really 1960s, 1970s kind of technology baseline. Obviously, it's been upgraded, and the, the British E3Ds are pretty good. Um, but what the wedge tail brings along is it brings along, uh, an airliner that is not a Boeing 707, um, as your airframe. So something that's going to be in production for a long period of time and is literally everywhere. And it brings modern design, uh, capabilities into the radar that were, you know, a pipe dream back when the original E3A was developed. So you're getting significant more capability and um, a lot more computational power compared to the E3. So the E3 is not dead, um, but it's definitely kind of getting close to sunset. Okay. Ghost Dog has asked, politics aside, are there any weapons from NATO nations that you wished you'd seen brought into the U.S. inventory? For example, Azram, Meteor, Alarm. Uh, and if there are, why so the short answer is no. Um, the Japanese AA-4B, I'd have liked to see us experiment with it, the active AIM-7. Um, but I would definitely like to see components of weapon systems come in. Like, for example, the French have been developing a solid fuel ramjet uh, that I think would be spiffy as an air-to-air -air missile motor. Um, and so that there's potential there. They're probably uh, well ahead of U.S. industry in that particular area. So it's not that I I can't think of any European weapon that I've been particularly jonesing for over my life, keeping in mind that, that the Joint Strike Missile is a European weapon, and we already have it. So, um, you know, and, and the Naval Strike Missile, European weapon. So it's not that there aren't features that I like, but I didn't see any, I don't have any mental need to say, oh man, I really wish I had that particular weapon. Uh, I don't. I really wish I, I had the uh, the all-around situational awareness um, that the Rafal was supposed to get. 
um, in terms of the missile launch sensors, but apparently portions of that didn't live up to expectations. So I can't even say I want that. Not impressed with Meteor then? How does it beat an AMRAAM? It's longer range, doesn't it? Much longer range. Does it? Well, I mean, we've got, you know, Jane's figures, you know, Wikipedia figures, open source figures would suggest that it does. Yeah, so I don't know the answer to that. And can it make use of its longer range? And what does it pay? How does it pay for that? I just don't know enough. Fair enough. Um, you know, I, if uh, as a derivation for a longer range air to air missile, um, it might be a good baseline. I think the US has the aim to, I don't even know what the designation is, the, the new sort of AMRAM that's very secret, aim 236 or something like that. It's It's supposed to. Right. Also, the modular Boeing's yeah. modular air-to-air -air missile, which is neat. I, I think those would be neat too. Yeah. Um, but I'd need to know more about them. And if I knew more about them, I probably couldn't say a thing. So yeah. I kind of stuck. <laughs> Here's something you should be able to say plenty about. Uh, so Paladin One CD asked, um, "I'd love to hear about some of the hijinks and traditions of the units that you're in. Um, I'm sure that aircrew mess with each other and such. And can you share some of those stories? Make it brief. Um, don't 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 go on for hours." Um, lunches okay so you can go this was this i was introduced to this in the 81st fighter squadron spangdahl germany where you know you have a lunch fridge so you would typically have like a beer fridge and a lunch fridge and you know you stash your lunch in the fridge because plenty of guys bring lunch from home you don't necessarily have time to eat something else and you don't want to go for a diet coke and snickers bar for every meal because you already had those for breakfast um and so there were the guys in the squadron who would take a bite out of your sandwich and put it back you know, and so the, you would just go there and there would be a bite out of your sandwich. Um, you know, we don't really mess with each other's uh, flight gear, but there are things that might happen TDY. Um, you know, like I remember uh, a bunch of guys. I mean, I typically go to bed early and I don't drink, you know, so I'm usually well rested. And I, and I had a bunch of guys you know, throwing like tomatoes at my windows in the queues in Turkey. And I had the roulades down, so it's not like they're going to hurt anything. And where they got a bunch of tomatoes, I don't know. <laughs> but nevertheless, I went to sleep. And, but I, I identified by the voices, and in the case of Skip Jacoby, some giggling as to who <laughs> the perpetrators were. And so I pretty much the next day declared that there would be revenge. But skip i had to i had to forego my revenge because i stepped to the jet one day without my helmet and he had to bring it out to me so i had to give it up in order to get him to deliver my helmet to me but dennis malfer again one of my favorite pilots i just waited for dennis and i had a ziploc bag full of finely crushed saltine crackers and i waited for the day he left his door unlocked and he left his door unlocked and i snuck in and i left the bag of saltine crackers in the bag on top of his pillow to remind him of what could have happened, okay, had to get, now that I had access to his bed um, and, like, all of his clothing and everything in his little queue room. So that was a word to the wise, and, and Malf is smart enough to take that. The issues were not repeated. So the kind of standard stuff you would see. You'd take a guy's hat, you put it in the freezer, um, or you save it, you know, till you can throw it on a bar and have somebody else's hat on the bar so he has to buy drinks. That's all normal stuff, you know, dining ins, formal events, uh, you know, the grog bowl. There's really too much to list. But, yes, we have them. 
Um, some of them cause embarrassment. Some of them don't. And some of them are just traditional. We imported a lot from the Royal Air Force. Uh, some of our traditions are derived from the Royal Air Force. And even the RAF doesn't know why they do them. I wanted to ask, there's a particular question that was asked of you. I'm trying to find it. Um, around an article you wrote, I think, in 2014... Comanche and the Albatross. That was it, yeah. So the question, I'm sorry, I don't remember. I, it's somewhere down here. I don't remember who, who it was who asked the question. But um, can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, what was the article? And um, we don't have to go into the subject in detail. We can come back to that uh, and do it another time. But, but what was it that prompted you to write it? And you know, how does that fit in with your philosophy around writing in general? Oh, well, so the, the Air Force Chief of Staff at the time had been talking about the F-35 and said, you know, yeah, not a great airplane, but we have no choice. And I thought that was bullshit. So I wrote in Air and Space Power Journal an article called The Comanche and the Albatross, the Comanche being an Army stealth helicopter that was canceled, and the Albatross being the whole Samuel Ta uh, Taylor Coleridge rhyme of the ancient mariner thing uh, with the albatross around your neck just kind of dragging you down. The curse, as it were. Uh, and I laid out an article saying, of course, we had a choice that we had made the wrong design decisions uh, with the F-35, that we had paid too much attention to stealth. Uh, and I published it in an Air Force document and, um, you know, written by an 06. And my writing philosophy, a lot of my professional writings, because remember, this was part of my duty at the time on, on the Chief Strategic Studies Group or uh, uh, a number of other locations was that I would often write in response to something that somebody had said publicly that was stupid or wrong. Um, and I had to dig into it, but I had to do the research because, you know, sometimes where I start an article is not where I end up in the article. And, you know, the question was, was I punished for it? Um, yeah, sort of, but nothing officially. Uh, you know, I was punished in that my, uh, I was told to stop writing for a couple of months while I was in the Pacific. And, um, uh, my next uh, evaluation was good, but my recommendation for promotion was a do not promote. Oh, really? I didn't. Oh, yeah. I didn't even get a debrief on that one, by the way. I didn't know it until I actually saw the form after the board. Um, that's the cost of doing business. Uh, nails that stick up get hammered. Um, so you would have been an 05? You would have been a uh, lieutenant colonel? So no, was I was a colonel at the time. That was that was my promotion recommendation for 07. Oh, you would have, you would have maybe got a star. Did you have, no, a, did you have a Geo sponsor? Okay. Yeah, so realistically, there was no way I was going to get a star. So that's why I'm not really wrapped up about it. Do not promote. It's a it's a blow to my ego more than it was a blow to my career path because okay. I was in the reserve system, and the reserves quite reasonably wants their general officers to be experts in the reserve system, and I'm not. I don't know anything about it. Hmm. And so all the qualities that, that – I think got me to 06 are exactly the qualities you do not want in your 07 core. Um, it had been fun and it had been ego, but there are also no good one-star jobs either. So I know I know two guys I used to fly with who've turned it down. Really? Yeah, because there were no good one-star jobs and they didn't expect to get one. So it's it's if it's your ambition to have a star, um then that's all well and good. That was never one of my ambitions. It's another way to feed my ego, uh, but it, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, getting getting an oak leaf was great. Getting eagles was, was extra spiffy. You know, a star, oh, I get a flag. 
Okay, so um, Book and Can Man eighty three. By the way, he's he's sent a donation to the channel. That's very kind of you. Thank you very much. Um, absolutely not necessary. Um, I do have a uh, buy me a coffee function, which I think I'll put in the description if you did want to make a, a donation. Thank you very much. But uh, thank you for the the donation. Um, has asked why the Russians haven't used the MiG twenty nine, MiG thirty five more. Um, so I know we're flip flopping back between Ukraine and general, but I, I wanted to ask this question because they did make a donation. Um, not that I want to encourage people to make a donation in order to get their question <laughs> asked. That's not what I'm trying to do. But I, I just felt it was the right thing to do. So let me ask you one felt more. Obligated. That's the, yes. Yeah, so that's the last Ukraine question, and then we'll finish off with our, our non-Ukraine questions. So, so, but anyway, why 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 has the MiG-25 seemingly been um, absent? Okay, so which MiGs are we talking about? Because you've mentioned three: MiG-29 and the 35, which I think is the modernized version of the MiG-29. Is that correct? Yeah, I think the only reason those aircraft are kept around by the Russians is for foreign military sales purposes. Um, I don't think they would add anything operationally. I think that's that is uh, a case where they don't need it for anything. They have better air-to-air options, and the MiG-29 is a crappy air-to-ground option. So that's... Uh, uh, I would not have expected them to fund those squadrons to be any more than the aerial demonstration team, and I've seen the MiG-29 aerial demonstration team, uh, not bad for a bunch of drunks. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I would not expect them to see that because I think that's a foreign military sales tool. It's yeah. another t-shirt. That was slogan. my exact phrasing at the time when I saw them. We need a picture of, uh, so, so um, Jack's meme, chief meme officer, we need a picture of some of the, sw the swans or the swallows, I think they're called. And then that quote, not bad for a bunch of drunks. Brilliant. Um, okay, so there we go. So that's that That makes perfect sense. All right, back to our other questions. And I think we'll probably do sort of another 10, 15 minutes and then wrap it up. Uh, give everybody enough time to hit the like button. Hint, hint. So let's go back down to our list here. Um, so I didn't I didn't understand this. Chris935 um, has asked, is City Desk the worst call sign ever? Or has there been an even worse one? What city desk? Who was city desk? I didn't bother. I have Googling no idea. Yet. Okay, I didn't bother googling. No, it, so and it's not the worst call sign ever. Okay, and it was Chris who had asked about the Comanche and the, uh, the Comanche and the Albatross. So there we go. But what was the worst call sign ever then? I think FI is probably the worst call sign ever. FI. Yep. I've, well, I've second of, word idiot. Say again. The second letter stands for idiot. So okay, so I think he's talking about uh, flight call signs, or maybe he's oh, not. Oh, flight know. call sign. I don't know now. I'm, now I'm confused because yeah. So Fifi. Okay, so, so, so Fifi doesn't stand for F idiot, F idiot. So I'm not going to no, say what it stands not. for because she will, she will, she's coming on the channel in three days' time. I'm recording my interview. Yeah, with her. good. She'll, so she'll let tell the story Fifi of her explain her her call sign. No, um, that that's totally unrelated to to Fifi. Okay, so fighter call signs. Fighter call signs should have one or two syllables. Um, so anything longer than that is complex. So city desk, I mean, who would have thought of that? Uh, so there was a question in earlier, you know, that came up on discord is how do you assign aircraft call signs? So this is all in the air tasking order. And the simple way to do it is to, um, have one of your advanced team list the call signs you want to use, you know, in that particular theater for that particular operation for your type of aircraft. The smart way to do this is to have a rotating random number puller, but that was not 
an easy capability, uh, you know, back in the 90s. So it wasn't done. So, for example, um, the weasels, because of Beagle Keck, were the beer call signs. And 111s were tools. Uh, tankers were sharks and predators. The eagles were gas stations, that kind of thing. Um, and so when, you know, when I, uh, when Bud and Course Flight bagged our, our SA-3 in northern Iraq, I had been the advanced team, so that's why the Strike Eagles were flying under Bud and Coors. And the Prowlers were flying under things like Harley, Bobo, and Wacker. I don't know. They must have skipped the meeting or something like that. Um, so there may be themes, and it all comes out, but it's all on the air tasking order. And your call sign should be no more than two syllables because you don't want to have to say multi-syllable word break left because it's just too much of a problem. Um, and so, I it city desk. Are you kidding me? I I would not. I would have scrubbed that freaking mission. I'm, I don't I'm, even care what he was doing. I'm wondering now if it's a person's call sign. I don't know. I I often feel like on Discord. I, maybe it's just because I'm 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 old and disconnected from life in general. But I, I a lot of the stuff that goes on there, I don't understand it. I just think I'm I'm missing. I didn't even know what a cat was the other day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That- and that's still reverberating. So it's actually the thing wearing a, a olive helmet right behind you right now. Um, okay, let's move on. Let's ask another question then. So um, this is very topical. Uh, so Loco had asked the question. God, it's gone missing. Uh, lucky I remember what it was. Loco asked the question about the announcement that the Kadena Eagle Squadrons. There's two Eagle Squadrons. Oh, Kadena, yeah. They're, they're going to. I don't know if they're going to shut down, deactivate, or if they're going to go somewhere else. But at any rate, there's going to be a rotation. Um, into Kadena by other Air Force fighter units. Thoughts? This is moronic, but it's a result of a series of bad Air Force decisions on their force structure. Um, so you can, the, the official national security strategy is that we're kind of focused on the Pacific. Um, that has never been true, even though uh, that started under President Obama, because there was always something happening in the Middle East or now in Europe that drew our attention. And so to say, hey, we're emphasizing the Pacific and we don't really have the base structure we want, but we're going to shut down one of our fighter wings and we're going to man it with rotational assets is insanely foolish. But uh, it's not clear to me that the Air Force had any other easy options. The other thing that is feeding this narrative is the F-15EX. The obvious solution to this problem is to deploy the first two F-15EX squadrons into Kadena, but the F-15EX is going to the National Guard, where they can sit in Oregon and defend Oregon against Chinese bombers. Okay, Again, uh, a ridiculously stupid, politically motivated, let's get some airplanes by buying off the Guard and a state congressional delegation with them. Uh, And that is definitely affecting the strategy. So if your eagles are not flyable, you know, because you haven't invested in them or they're just old or you were, you cut your strike eagle by all of these things happened. Hmm. These are all a series of bad decisions that have national security implications because we don't have the force uh, to do it. We should, um, if you want to pivot to the position, we should have three squadrons at Kadena, not two. Um, and they should be something with range and payload. And that means F 15 or E or F 15 EX. Do you think that the EX decision is 
um, could it be challenged? Is it has have those decisions been made? Has the money been sunk? Uh, is there any opportunity to? Of course, it could be changed. What does it take? Um, or what would it take? It would take the Secretary of Defense to say, "Yeah, you're not doing this," and we'd have to be able to get it through the uh, the appropriate congressional wickets, because there's some people that are going to be pissed in Oregon that their their air guard unit might lose their flying mission. They might lose some jobs. Uh, in this case, I would say that's too damn bad. Um, but a that's too damn bad excuse does not work when you're Department of Defense talking to Congress. Congress controls the purse springs. Hmm. Purse strings. Purse springs are what happens when you drop your purse and it bounces back up again. <laughs> It, uh, the, the conversation about range impaler reminds me of a comment somebody made on Discord. They just put B-52. There you go. That's what you need. Two squadrons of B-52, range impaler. Um, yes, but you still want them in, like, Australia and Guam. Okay, done. Yeah. Or Hawaii. Okay. The B-52 with the new engines, I mean, they can reactivate Castle Air Force Base, and they can still fly to the far <laughs> end of the theater. Uh Yeah. Uh, for their B-21 flyby. Whatever. <laughs> All right. Let's go to see if we're going to get any questions. I'm just looking at my list here. Uh, da, 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 da. That's a question. Why is the background back to front? Someone told me about that about two minutes in. I can't do anything about it. I need to go into my Zoom settings. Did you notice my background was back to front when we got not to go? back to front on my display. It's not back to front on your display. Weird. I don't know what's going on. Sorry, then. It looks okay to us. Um, don't know why... Maybe my broadcasting software is Oh, you're right. On YouTube. It. Yeah. Is on it, YouTube, is it on it's YouTube? flipping it. Uh, weird. I don't know what's going on. Anyway, so why is my background back to front? Because I've got something wrong. There we go. Um, all right. So here you go. So T-Zebra asks, non-opsec question, could you dump your fills under G? What does that mean? Is that another thing? Am I? So the fills are our crypto fills. Uh, okay. Um, and... I suppose you could. I don't know why you'd want to. Um, so, and it would depend on which aircraft you were flying, right? Because the KY-58 zero-eyes button on the F-4 was down between your legs. So I wouldn't want to try that under G because I'd be bouncing my face off the stick. Uh, but yes, I'm. there is most of what you can reach at 1G, you can reach... At a bunch of G's, with the exceptions of like the circuit breakers in the F4 or the right or left, um, uh, but you turn around. I mean, you do things. I, I would have interpreted that question to mean, you know, w could could the circuitry go, you know, to shit under G? You know, something touch something else because of the, you know, the G loading or something like that. Uh, I guess these devices were built to withstand typical loads. Yeah, they're they're built and tested for you know an aircraft environment. Hmm. I, I wouldn't. I mean, if if I had accidentally brought my pocket electromagnetic pulse generator into the cockpit and set it off accidentally, I might dump my fills then. But I always, always, always left my pocket EMP generator in life support. Thank goodness. Yeah, good thing. Um, okay, Jeffrey McQuaid, this is a cool question. At what range would a MiG-29 RAW pick up a long-range shot? It's kind oh. of a trick question, isn't it? It depends. Okay, so the MiG twenty one, the MiG twenty nine RAW is a SPO fifteen. The SPO fifteen is not a great radar warning receiver. 
Um, it's designed to tell you kind of the category radar that's doing its thing, and it's really designed to tell you if there's a, a target lock. So if I'm on high data rate twiz slinging AMRAMs, I don't think they're going to get a clue unless it's programmed to detect the AMRAM radar. And by the time the AMRAM comes on and turns on the radar, uh, now you're pretty much in a world of hurt. You're going to have a hard time completing a uh, avoidance maneuver, particularly because the SPO-15 does not really give you good enough situational awareness to do the kind of Western defense maneuvers that um, our fighters do. Our, our Your normal fighter's roar is not great, but it's better than a SPO-15. I think that's one of the things that's, that, that they reference in the Rusi article as well, isn't it? The fact there's a, uh, no indication for the Ukrainians that they're being targeted, and um, whereas with the R-27, you'd have to have a lock, so the Russians would get an indication. So, okay. Um, but, but, yeah, that's that, that. but for an R-27, you're in single-target track. A flash dance can shoot out of a number of potential modes, and add range, and so the SPO-15 may not recognize that particular mode. I think one or two last questions, Star Baby, then. So, so Gorio Productions had asked what the general consensus was on low-level regime and its evolution since the Gulf War. I think we touched on that a little bit, but probably given the nature of our conversation so far today and the fact that the Ukrainians had to go low-level, it might be worth uh, a quick summary from your point of view. How, how has it evolved? Um, you know what, what, so, what and 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 I think he's also asking do you get a sense from the current leadership in the air force what they're thinking Oh I have no idea what the current leadership of the air force is thinking on low um if they're smart they're thinking oh we need to invest a whole lot more in low altitude So back in the day for NATO so in the 80s everybody was low altitude guy okay and like I pointed out before is that nobody who flew low altitude in Europe uh, no matter how low they were and no matter which Air Force they were in, everybody has the experience of a Royal Air Force fighter going underneath them when they thought they were at low altitude. And that was because of the threat environment. And we started out the Gulf War that way, and there were definitely some losses. And so, you know, by day three, certainly by day seven, some guys were late. We're all up at medium altitude. And so the... Air Force came away with a lesson that we'll never go low again because we had all our losses at low altitude. But the Air Force misanalyzed its own data. What they didn't realize is that they did not lose an aircraft on ingress or egress at low altitude. They lost them in the target area when the factor was not so much low altitude as it was proximity to clustered air defenses because these losses were uh, very much around airfields. Um. And so what they should have gotten out of it was airfield attack is dangerous when you go in close and we have to be able to do standoff. And what the Air Force came out with was we can't go low. But they were still trying. I mean, remember, after the Gulf War, we were flying Block 40 Vipers with Lantern. They got the targeting pod and the nav pod. They had the terrain following radar. And the Block 40s were like the one-man F-16, except that Lantern went away. The nav pod went away on the Vipers because they killed too many of their dudes at night. Um, because it's not a great single seat meeting. So we talked about, we joked because we're evil and we have black humor about man turn in the Viper, medium altitude, you know, targeting at night. Um, and so everybody does some low altitude, but even in like the mid 2000s, I was at a conference at Maxwell Air Force Base, you know, as a major, 
And I heard general officers saying, yeah, we're, we're going to take the low altitude requirement away from the, the strike eagles. I said, no, you're not. He's a standard iron major staff guy. You know, you can't possibly support that. It'll never make it through the process because it's stupid and here's why. And it's one of the rare cases where the facts, um, you know, beat it. But now having, you know, flown at extremely low altitude in attempts to uh, evade radar, I'm a big fan. Um, and that is something I think we need to be training for because if for no other reason than if you need it, you probably need it badly and you better be trained for it. And so I'm hoping that one of the things that Ukraine teaches the United States is that we need to be proficient and we need to be capable and we need to have the systems to support operations at low altitude, particularly at night. I've got a couple articles uh, on that in War on the Rocks um, where I talk about low altitude. Um, I think the series was called Stuck on Denial. And it starts out with stealth is every attacking the stealth is everything, uh, and goes to hey let's start rethinking low altitude. Yeah. So now I feel completely justified in those articles years later, because not only are the Ukrainians going low, but the Russians have had to go low. Fortunately, the Russians suck at it. Yeah. Okay, last question then. Um, this is from Jester again. And again, if anybody's listening and they asked a question and they're disappointed they didn't get uh, to hear the answer, then we will dump it into a thread on the Discord channel, uh, which you should come and join if you want to see Starbaby answer it. And, uh, and again, I'm not going to commit him to doing that. He did it last time. And uh, if he has time, he'll do it again. But I'm sure you'll get an answer at some point. I also tend to do it on the YouTubes, too. You do it um, on YouTubes, too. You shouldn't, really, because it's the, well, anyway, it's up to you. You do what you do what you want with your time. and well, that's where I, I. Where else can I find my Russian trolls to abuse? Well, they haven't come to Discord. I, I you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not going to say I'm disappointed that they haven't come to Discord. I think one of the things that, you know, f philosophically, from my point of view, would be good is to have some people challenge some of the things that are on the channel. I would love to interview a Russian. I'd love to get uh, somebody who has experience flying with VKS to come on and talk about things from their perspective. Um, I definitely would like to put a balanced view forward. Uh, but certainly those people who uh, shit talk on YouTube uh, haven't come to Discord so far. Um, and I wouldn't have a problem with them coming to Discord so long as they don't make ad hominem attacks on people and they're not massively disruptive. But they should certainly come and uh, share their viewpoint and be prepared to be countered on it. Anyway. I don't know. Just having one gunship dude is massively disruptive. I don't know how I know. worse you want it to get. I know. I, I sort of kind of regret, you know, inviting him now. <laughs> So, um, all right, so the last question is going to be from Jester. So have you ever face-planted due to an unexpected maneuver, and is there a name or a word for that happening? Uh, there's a word you say when it does happen. <laughs> um, yeah, so of course I have. So when you're learning to be a baby Wizzo, um, baby Ewo, you definitely, there's a couple things that you're, you haven't adjusted to. There's the possibility that you're going to bounce your face off the stick or the, the, the actually it was a rubber radar hood in the F4, or you're going to slam your helmet against the side of the canopy. So that happens to everybody at some point because you don't have the ability when you're a young guy or gal to anticipate the onset of G or the sudden maneuvers. Once you get some more experience in the airplane, then it doesn't happen. You know, you, you know what's going to happen you know, from the environment and from the movement of the stick. And of course the stick moves before the, uh, the, anything else happens. So, 
Um, yeah, that's it has happened. It happens to everybody. And then it's hard to do because you just learn your body learns. You don't even think about it. OK, on that note, let's have a, a quick um, update then on when we're talking to you next. So we're not going to do an AMA in December, I don't think. I think our next AMA is going to be the weasel, the massive weasel AMA. We're going to have to sort out some timing for that because um, we've got loads of questions, loads of interest on a dedicated wild weasel AMA. I, I'm not going to want to do it at exactly this time because it's now 10.15 in the evening for me and even this is pushing things a little bit. So we'll have to figure out some timing, but we are committed to doing that, I think, in early January. I don't know if you and I have a date in the diary, so I won't, I won't announce it just yet. But for anybody listening, we'll get that done in January. We will, however, see you in December for the Star Wars um, Brevity Com, which is not going to be done live. We're pre-recording that. That's on um, Discord as well. If you're interested in coming along and being a voice actor, well, you'll need your image on the screen as well because we'll have video cameras and, and that kind of stuff up and running. So if you're interested in coming along and, and taking part in that, we still need, well, we don't actually need anybody else, but we have capacity for uh, uh, other actors to come along. So um, come and check out the Discord Actors channel. who might only get one word. Yeah, you may only get one word, but you'll be part of something great. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, so all that remains then is for me to say uh, Star Baby thank you so much uh, I look forward to that I'm really looking forward to the Weasel AMA and we will resume the Star Baby AMAs I guess at the end of January so we'll, we'll get back into that cadence uh, thank you to everybody who's joined us um, for this and thank you very much for um, thumbing it up and for taking part in the chat sorry if your question didn't get asked live thanks to Jax for doing the background and thanks to the team on uh, Discord and here Nux and Exchequer today who have helped to um, farm out some of those questions to me and on my Word document in my iPad here and uh, have a great weekend, everybody, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. All righty. Veterans Day. Yeah. Happy Veterans Day. Cheers. See y'all. Thanks for tuning in to 10% True. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to subscribe, and if you're on YouTube, hit the bell button to make sure you get notified of the next episode. Thanks, and take care.